Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, ciao, everybody, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Jallo Chow Chow podcast. This is the All Jallo Show. This is episode 98. Boy, we are getting so close to that big triple-digit number, aren't we? So close. So close. We are going to be covering the 1967 film called Date for a Murder, uh, directed by uh, Mino Guarini, I think. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Joining me from Italy, as always, is Al. Ciao, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm great. I am once again uh, impressed with your Fellini-like animated <laughs> GIF talents. And the third, the first, the second, and the third eye. Well, that was really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, that took a little doing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if fun is the right word. Because the the clips I wanted to use were all so short, and I got them from, I think, three different places in the film. I took the uh, just the you know, straight video file out and had to convert those into GIF frame-by-frame frame files and then mix them. And I tried to do it so it wasn't so obvious, but some of them I prolonged by reversing them, like the... The part where they're kissing, if you pay close enough attention, you can oh, see. Oh, yeah. It. Yep. And uh, her doing the eye roll at the end, that I reversed that whole thing and then realized it was still too short. So I had to reverse it back at the front of it, which was the end of it in the original. It was kind of a pain in the ass. But uh, you suffer for your work, sir. Well, it's a learning process. So. But I wanted to give it a happier ending after he does the eye roll. Because in the film, she's dead. And I thought, well, I'm going to show her you know, surviving at least the, the GIF, if not the film. 
think you're rewriting history. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing a Tarantino on it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if he can kill Hitler in a movie theater, I can let the, uh, the cabaret dancers survive. Right. Well, not only does he kill Hitler, but he also keeps Sharon Tate from dying, right? Yeah. Yeah. At the end, at the end of that other one. Mm-hmm. But we digress, ladies and gentlemen. So this is, again, episode 98, and we are getting really, really close to our 100th episode. And um, I have to say with some trepidation that I have yet to confirm anything with our other two um, fearless leaders slash guests for episode 100. But I am hoping that within the next, say, 45 days or so, we will have something lined up. And I started thinking about whether or not we wanted to do it as a video podcast or just an audio one. Um, we'll see. I'll, I'll throw the question out to the group and see what everybody wants to do. Okay. Um, but in case you are, um, in case you're new to the podcast, everybody, uh, if you go back and listen to our old episodes, our fearless leader, the man who started it all, Matt wall, AKA creep creeperson, um, has sort of vaguely committed to the idea that he would come and join us for episode 100, as well as the Phantom Eric, who was also one of the original members of the podcast back in 2013, believe it or not. So our plan is to all converge uh, sometime in November, December of this year and record episode 100, where we will be re returning to the film that started it all for us, as well as for the Jalo uh, movement, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage by Dario Argento. Um, and honestly, you know, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun because that is the first film that was discussed on the podcast. I wasn't even part of the podcast way back then. And, you know, I can't say as much for Eric as the rest of us. But I mean, even Eric and Matt and myself and you, Al, we've learned so much and been exposed to so much more jolly since that first episode that our take on bird after a hundred episodes is going to be vastly different than it was <clears throat> back 10 years ago. So it's, um, it's an exciting prospect. I will say that much. Um, whether it actually comes to fruition is, Anybody's guess, but you know, we'll still, we'll still do bird with the crystal plumage for episode 100, even if it's just the two of us. So, um, okay. That much I can, that much I can promise the listeners. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. That's one that I've, of course I've seen that a few times before, but never with the critical podcaster eye that I've come to develop over the last year or so since I've been doing this. So I'd be looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I really, I mean, I've probably seen it more times than you have, but in the same way, um, not having gone through it scene by scene. And I think that both of us will be very, I don't know if surprised is the right word, but I think that because of, of the films that we've been covering for the past two years, mm -hmm. when we watch Bird, I think we're going to notice a level of quality that we really haven't seen in a while. 
And we certainly will see it, you know, imitated and repeated as we move forward past 1970. But I think that uh, as far as it being a classic giallo compared to all the ones we've been talking about, you know, prior to Bird, I think we'll both notice a lot of quality differences in, you know, the way that the story progresses and the way that the murders are filmed and handled and staged and that sort of thing. So it'll be fun, I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So what else can I tell you guys? We've had a lot of new members, probably about 20 to 25 new new folks on the group uh, within the last month. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I, I credit some of that to the fact that I've been posting our podcast links on some of the other Facebook groups about Jalo mm-hmm. and also the subreddit. So everybody, um, all of this is to say thank you for all the people that have been um, coming to the group and all the people who have been listening to the podcast. The last episode is up to 400 downloads. So that's really awesome. Just to finish this up, if there is anything that you out there as a listener would like for us to do, for us to talk about, any feedback you'd want to give us, you can get in contact with us, obviously, through the Facebook page, which is Jalo Chow Chow on Facebook. It's a private group. Uh, you can also send an email to Jalo Chow Chow at gmail.com. Just wanted to throw that in there because I usually don't. I usually don't uh, plug anything until four hours later, and that may be why we're not getting <laughs> any correspondence. Like, who can wait that long? And not enough people um, make it that far, maybe. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, without further ado, we would like to talk about this wonderful film called Date for a Murder. From 1967, and it is what we call a prototype giallo. Um, and I'm going to try my best to pronounce the Italian language title for this. An appuntamento. Is it per? I, I don't have it in front of me. I'm doing it off memory. Appuntamento per omicidio. Omocidio. The C I is a chi sound. And oh, no, I've got it backwards. It's actually homicidio per, per appuntamento. Okay. Per appuntamento. Yep. And so oh, go ahead. the English title is Date for a Murder, but mm-hmm. this is Murder 
by appointment or for appointment, right? Well, in Italian, when you're having a date, like uh, a boy and a girl going out to dinner in a movie or something, they refer to that as an appuntamento. Uh, okay. So literally it is appointment, but instead of saying, oh, I had a great date with that girl last night, you would say I had a great appointment with that girl last night. So, okay. If you uh, had an appointment with, um, a doctor, mm -hmm. what would you call that? Well, that would, it'd be the same thing. Appuntamento. Oh, okay. Um, and Crazy I, Italians. Well, I mean, if you come at it from outside <laughs> of English to say that you have a date with somebody, a date, what do you mean? So a little square on the calendar, you had that with somebody? What does that mean? You know, so. You're right. English uh, is way worse. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Omicidio per appuntamento is the Italian title. Mm-hmm. And uh, with, uh, with that, let's start off by talking about um, the production notes and credits. Okay. Uh, so, Date for a Murder, 1967. It was directed by, as we said earlier, Mino Guarini, who did The Third Eye that we covered in our last podcast. Just a quick refresher about him. He was born in 1927 and died in 1990. Uh, he has 27 directing credits between 64 and 86. And uh, a little note I noticed on the second watch, we actually see this man in this film. He has a very brief cameo, and I'll point ah. that out when we get to it. So, oh, cool. If you're wondering what uh, Mino Guadini looks like, uh, stay tuned. Yes. And we'll let you know. It's been on my mind for weeks. <laughs> Sorry. Well, except, you know, once you get outside of Hitchcock and, you know, Woody Allen, obviously, sometimes you don't see the, the director in the actual film. Um, right. Okay, this had a third title, and that was a German title, and it tied in with the main actors uh, series of films that were Euro spy ripoffs. And I'll get more into that later, but the German title was, uh, agent or agent, uh, three S three sets auf eine Karte, which means agent three S three puts everything on one card as in bets everything on one card. Okay. But the, what a crazy title. Yeah. Well, the two movies that he did previously that were Agent 3S3 films, his character had a completely different name than his character's name in this film. So it was kind of a reach to, um, to call it that. And they were Italian productions. The Agent 3S3 films were Italian productions. So I think the fact that they only connected it in the German title maybe something about the market there was different and i wonder i didn't listen to the german track but that only really works if the character has the same name I mean, you don't have a 007 movie with an agent whose name is the same actor but now he's not james bond he's bill smithers or something 
right? Right. So, uh, speaking of Germany, this was a German-Italian co-production. It was produced by a company called Disco Bolo Films. And I couldn't find much information about the company, but I did find out that Disco Bolo is what they call the little disc that athletes throw. It's kind of like the, the shot put, but I think a shot put yeah. is like a ball. It's a ball, yeah. Right, so when the they... Discus. Right, discus throwing, yeah. Yep. Okay, uh, this film was based on a novel written by Franco Enna. The title of the novel was Tempo di Massacro, which is Time of Massacre. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for Milano Rovente, or Gang War in Milan, from 1973, a classic Polizio Tesco directed by Umberto Lindsay and co-starring Marissa Mel that we saw in Perversion Story or One on Top of the Other. Right. One of the other writers. Boy, was, did we. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we see a lot of we her. Definitely saw her. <laughs> One of the other writers was Fernando de Leo. Uh, he's mostly known as a director of Spaghetti Westerns and Polizio Teschi. Uh, he lived from 32 to 2003. He has 47 writing credits between 64 and 85. And Fernando de Leo is given at least partial credit for the screenplay for Slaughter Hotel or Cold-Blooded Beast. Or, as I learned recently, an a third title for that film was Asylum Erotica, which makes it sound a lot more fun than it actually is. And Mino Guarini is also credited as one of their writers. The producers, uh, Lillian Bianchini, uh, she worked with Disco Bolo Films to put this together. She has five production credits between 66 and 69. So this was a gig that she didn't do for very long. Uh, a noteworthy film that she did produce was An Angel for Satan from 66 that starred Barbara Steele. One of the co-producers was Giuliano Simonetti. He has 21 production credits between 58 and 77. I didn't notice anything particularly interesting to Jalo fans, but like me, if you're a Femi Benussi fan, he did one in 77 called Cara Dolce Nipote, which means Dear Sweet Niece. So that sounds like uh, obviously it's going on my list. The music for this film was composed by Ivan Vandor. He was born in Hungary. In 1932, he died somewhere, uh, it didn't tell me where, but in 2020. He has 13 composing credits between 62 and 84. As a child, he studied violin and piano, and as a teenager, he was a professional jazz saxophonist in Hungary. Huh. And that must have been, I guess, in the 50s or late 40s. And if you keep that in mind... The professional jazz thing. That makes a lot more sense as you're listening to the film. Cinematography was done by Franco Delicoli. He was born in 29 and died in 2004. All in Rome. 
He has 51 cinematography credits between 62 and 90, including Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, What Have They Done to Your Daughters, Strip Nude for Your Killer, and, a new discovery for me, Revenge of the Dead, which is a zombie film from 1983 directed by Poopy Avati, who directed The House with Laughing Windows. The cast includes uh, George Addison, or Giorgio Addison, depending on what film you're watching. He plays a part of Vince Dreiser. He is our protagonist. He was born in 1931 in Turin, and he passed away in 2014 in Cerveteri. He has 66 acting credits between 59 and 92, including... Mario Bava's Hercules and the Haunted World from 61. And he was in the Fellini film Juliet of the Spirits from 1965. The Agent 3S3 films that he did, the first one was called Passport to Hell from 65, and the second one was called Massacre in the Sun from 66. And they are pretty blatant James Bond ripoffs, complete with the dapper clothes and the scenes overstuffed with uh, beautiful, willing women lounging in the background. So, if you're into Euro Spy, you can check those <laughs> not out. Li- not unlike, not unlike where the film we're about to talk about. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> something totally different. Uh. There's a woman in this film that he is charged with, he calls it, babysitting. Uh, her, the character's name is Fidelia Forrester. She is played by a woman who, in this film, is credited as Ella Karin. And other places, she goes by a different name, Helena Zaluska. She was born in Poland in 1940, and she died in 1976 in Rome. So she was only 35 or 36 years old. Uh, I couldn't find out more details about that. But she managed to rack up 25 acting credits in 14 years between 61 and 75. She was in the aforementioned An Angel for Satan, but also Long Hair of Death. So Barbara Steele fans have probably seen her before. Her last film in 75 might be a Jalo. I've seen it listed as a Jalo. I've also seen it listed as a uh, just a detective crime police type film called The Police Are Blundering in the Dark. Mm, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, so that might go on a future podcast list. Um, in this film, there's a police commissioner that assists our hero. His name is Commissioner Junta. He is played by Gunter Stoll, who was born in Duisburg, Germany in 1924, and he passed in 77 in Gelsenkirchen, Germany. He has 43 acting credits between 57 and 77, including 1969's Double Face with Klaus Kinski, he was also in Bloodstained Butterfly from 71 and What Have You Done to Solange from 72. Right. That's where I remember him from. He's like the father of Solange. Oh, okay. I knew I'd I think seen so. his face before somewhere, but once I saw 
you know, I couldn't remember exactly which character he played, just that he was a familiar face. Okay, in this film, our hero, Vince Dreiser, is trying to track down his friend, Walter Dempsey. He is played by Hans von Borsody, who was born in 29 in Vienna. He passed away in 13 in Kiel, Germany. He has 102 acting credits between 55 and 2012. It is a ton of Austrian and or German stuff that I've never heard of. And I think this is the only thing that he's in that we'll probably watch for this. In this film, there's an old man in a wheelchair. And I say that because that is exactly how he's credited on IMDb. <laughs> I don't have any biographical information about him, but his name is Aldo de Carelis. He only has 12 acting credits between 65 and 74, but we have seen him before in Naked You Die from 1968. Oh, right. Okay. He was Professor Andre. Yep. The poor guy who's walking around half the movie with all the answers everybody's looking for, but they just <laughs> ignore him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> go back and hang out with your uh, butterflies. Yeah, and, yeah. And, go uh, play. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he doesn't fare much better in this film, but at least no. he's not treated like an idiot. Um, let's see, there's a character in here called Massimo Tucci. He is played by Luciano Rossi. Uh, in this film, Massimo Tucci, his character, is a... What is he? A, a junkie? The, the guy in the uh, the rooftop chase. Spoiler. Um, we've seen... Uh, I We'll try and figure that out in a little bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> what the hell he is. Speaking of uh, having unanswered questions, this is probably the most David Lynch jolly we've ever seen as far as the head scratching goes. Uh, Luciano Rossi was born in 34 in Rome, and he died there in 2005. He has 75 acting credits between 62 and 87. We have definitely seen him before. He was in Death Walks on High Heels, So Sweet, So Dead, Death Walks at Midnight, and he was in Lucio Fulci's 1980s zombie film, City of the Living Dead. Huh. I don't, rem I don't recognize him from that. That's interesting. From what? City of the Living Dead? Yeah. He looked very different in this, because when I think of him, I always think of the, the character he played in So Sweet, So Dead. Where he was the yeah. the morgue guy with the creepy pictures under his bed or something. Uh, oh, he he doesn't have a major role in that. That's why I don't recognize him. He's just um, he's one of the police. He's he almost an extra in that Ful Fulci film. Oh, pretty much. He's on screen for like two seconds. Okay. Uh, there's one other actor I thought kind of worth mentioning. Uh, he plays the part of Guido Salvatorelli, who's one of the bad guys that we investigate or come across. He's played by Cesarino Michelli Picardi. Uh, couldn't find any biographical information, but he only has nine acting credits between 1960 and 1968. And of those nine, three of them are Fellini films including two of his uh, masterpieces, La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half, 
He was also in Juliet of the Spirits. Uh, this film is shot in and around Rome, and that's very obvious because we get a little travelogue montage tossed in rather clumsily, I thought, in the middle of this film. <laughs> yeah. And parts of it were shot in a town north of Rome called Vriano, which they mentioned. And to prove it to you, they even show you the, the city limits sign announcing Vriano. <laughs> And that is all the production information I have. I couldn't find anything about box office or budget or how widely it was released. But there... Yeah, not without your pro account. Yeah. Um, maybe that's what we should ask people to donate for. Not necessarily um, <laughs> bonus episodes hidden behind a Patreon yeah. uh, paywall, but just send us a, a donation so that we can get an IMDb Pro, because we really want to know how much it made, and then convert it into convert it from lira to dollars, and then mm -hmm. adjust for inflation. Like that whole that whole little cycle that you did. I guess it was for two films ago. That was really mm -hmm. good. We need to do that more often. But if the if the box office take for these films isn't available, then we just you know, we can't really provide that information. So uh, right. Pony and, up. No, I'm just kidding. And even with that information, it's hard to tell if it was considered successful. Because I right. think a film or two ago, we came up with the number of like one million something. And it's like, okay, that sounds like a lot of money. But maybe back then, you'd have to compare it to things that were considered blockbusters at the time. Well, you know, relative to the Italian market, at least. Right. Yeah, so uh, just a couple of things from your credits that I wanted to bring up um, before we move on to the film. Specifically, you mentioned a film called Revenge of the Dead by Pupi Avati, mm -hmm. who directed um, House with Laughing Windows. Right. I have an interesting history with this film, even though I still haven't seen it yet. Um if you look it up on IMDb, Revenge of the Dead has this awesome illustrated cover of a zombie rising out of the concrete of a sidewalk in a city. And it says, the dead shall rise. And I've seen that cover so many times when I was a kid going into video rental stores because it looked so awesome. I don't know if I ever rented it or not. And if I did, I, it wasn't memorable because what I found out not too long ago, maybe within the last 10 years of being into Jalo, is that this is not a zombie film at all. It's actually called Zader, Z-E-D-E-R. Okay. And it falls under the category of Jalo way more than it falls under the category of zombie film. So oh. um, I, I still have never seen it, but... I've read enough about the fact that um, many, many, many people who have tried to watch this um, with the expectation that they were going to see something similar to a Fulci zombie movie were very pissed off because <laughs> uh, it's nothing like that. But it, I'm looking at the trailer and it looks like a, a, a decently stylized Jalo film, but um, from the early 80s. So. Uh, I think that was the only thing I had to say. Um, 
as far as date for a murder is concerned, everybody, uh, you kind of want to know where you can watch this if you haven't watched it. And I have some sad news because uh, as I was doing my scene by scene notes earlier this week, I was watching a very nice looking version on YouTube. And of course the film, I think it's uh, it's default language release was probably English because I haven't seen every copy of the film. I see the default language is English. I never, I never see it in Italian or German. Like you were saying um, that may just be that the only copy that's out there is one that was exported for English speaking audiences. But at any rate, um, halfway through my notes, I stopped because I was, it was getting late and I returned to it the next day. And the, <laughs> the YouTube video was, was yanked. So, uh, unfortunately, that was the only version of the film I could find uh, for free, uh, legitimately free, or obviously not so legitimately free because it's been uh, removed from YouTube. Um, I think there's a DVD available for the film, but I also think it is a gray market DVD where um, you know one of these replication houses has... Uh, a master copy and they just make DVR copies of it. Remember that DVR? Oh yeah. I remember those. Um, so yeah, I hope that people uh, are able to find a copy of this. Um, if you, if you decide that you're going to be an pirate, um, <laughs> there's plenty of places to look for it and find it. Um <clears throat> What else do I need to say before we start? Uh, you mentioned the composer for the soundtrack of the film or the score of the film. And mm -hmm. I just wanted to, in a general sort of way, highlight that this is probably one of the first films we've done in a long time where I felt that the soundtrack not only was well done and the themes were well composed, but I... I really feel like it was used well. Um, sometimes, you know, you listen to, or you, uh, sometimes you watch uh, an Umberto Lenzi giallo or like Case of the Bloody Iris, for example, and there's that main theme that they hit you with as soon as the film starts. And then they just break into it throughout the film. And by the time you get to the end, you're sick of it. Um, even, even the um, Blood and Black Lace theme, mm -hmm. they they kind of played it too much. But I think in this movie, uh, there's a very subtle main theme that gets introduced in the beginning of the film. And they return to it often, but they every time they return to it, it's almost like a different uh, interpretation of it. Maybe it's up-tempo this time, or maybe it's um, slowed down, or um, maybe it's the instrumentation is different. And uh, But anyway, I thought that, you know, because after Bird with the Crystal Plumage, one of the main things to take advantage of and, and enjoy when you watch Giallo films is how the soundtrack uh, lends itself to the film and the story and the mood. And 
these proto Jolly that we've been covering, they really don't have that yet. I think it wasn't until Morricone um, got involved with Argento and started doing things that were a little bit more interesting that people said, hey, let's put some cool music in these giallos instead of just making them, you know, uh, mood pieces where, you know, if it's if it's a suspenseful scene, then we're just going to do suspenseful music. And if it's a love scene, we're going to do, you know, mellow music. Like it became more than that once uh, I think Bird came out. So, yeah, anyway. So I was I, I really enjoyed the uh so listen everybody, I have a goal for this scene by scene analysis, and I don't know if we're going to achieve it. We will decide at the end, but I'd like to find this happy medium between trying to figure out what the hell is going on in this movie and at the same time saying, Okay, we don't really need to pick it apart that much and still enjoy it. Um, so time will tell <laughs> if we can actually do that. <laughs> so this film starts out, uh, right in the action. Um, we're introduced to a man who has a lot of guns and it'll become very evident as we get through the movie that he is gun happy. Um, to the point where it becomes a a problem, (laughs) um, in this particular film. Uh, so he's got all these guns and the music starts and it's very slow kind of stripper music, like, like, uh, you just kind of picture somebody with like a boa just dancing around and he's loading this gun that seems to have a bell on the top of it where the chamber is. So he he sets it up on a chair and stands in front of this white screen. And then all of a sudden the gun goes off and the music completely changes to this like uh can can music, like dun 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 um and we see the title screen and the title screen for the version I had is the German title. I don't know if you noticed that too, or if you have the same thing as I do. Yeah, that's, um, that's what I have. The, the copy you have. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that may be the only copy in circulation. Um, so they just flashed the name of the movie on screen and then it comes back off. The music continues and we now see that the face of this man who's, He's very, uh, he's a very handsome looking, American looking, uh, jet set kind of James Bond looking kind of guy. And he's dodging bullets that get shot from this gun. And every time the bell rings, it's it's like a little warning that the trigger's going to go off and he jumps out of the way at the last second. And you can see that the bullets are making imprints on the screen that he's standing in front of. And then one of them hits him in the face and it turns out that they're rubber and he makes this kind of look like, oh boy. And you, I think, immediately get a feeling that some of this movie is going to be in the lighthearted category. But um, I don't know if it is. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's setting up a very light tone for the film. Right. And I don't know if it ever gets back to that. 
No, I don't think it does. I mean, there okay, there are lighter moments in the film, which I'll certainly point out because to me they were the highlight of the whole movie. But as far as this man being a character, this is as happy-go-lucky as we will ever see him again. Right. And one thing I noticed the second time I watched it, in this intro, he looks much younger than he will ever mm. look again in the film. Ah. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, so, anyway. So that would the 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 hypothesis then would be that they filmed this part um first or much earlier than the rest of the film because maybe they had the film scheduled and they knew he was going to be in it so they they filmed well, this first part to use like a trailer or something. Well, maybe if it was 10 years earlier <laughs> because by the end of the film he looks like he's aged a couple decades. Uh, I wonder. Yeah, he does. Maybe this was filmed a couple years earlier for one of the Agent S three S or three S three, whatever the hell agent it was. I wonder if this was an outtake from one of those previous films. <clears throat> oh, okay. Um, now, was he in? I, I missed that part in the in the production notes. Was he in any of those? Yeah, he was the agent. That he was, was in, the agent. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. So this is kind of, for the German audiences, they're making this into a series of movies, I guess. And, but did they, but we've never really seen any of the other ones. This one just pops up as a, a film on the list of Jolly from the early 60s, or for the late 60s, anyway. Yeah, because the other ones are definitely Euro spy, And the plot of this doesn't really strike me as a, it would fit into a Euro spy. This character we find out is a detective and he's referred to as an American. Okay. Right. He's in Italy. He has this case full of pistols and guns and there's no second amendment in Italy. Okay. So that struck me as kind of odd that some foreigner would just come into Italy with a suitcase full of guns. Right. Um, he does mention that he's a detective, which is not a spy. Uh, so I'm not sure how they were trying to shoehorn this into the Agent 3S3 series, besides... Right. Uh, maybe they were just trying to confuse people and you know, try to bleed off of the uh, the success of that film. I think if I watch this film again, I'll watch it in German and see if his name is still Vince Dreiser because in the Agent 3S3 films, the character's name is Walter Ross. And ah, okay. if they change his name, then I'll know that at least for the German market, this was a sequel or you know, okay. part three That's of the series. Look at that. You have some homework to do, other than making animated GIF files. Yeah, GIF. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to, every time, every time I go to say that word now, I have to stop and say, what am I going to say this time? Am I yeah. going to say it with GIF or GIF? And the same thing happens to me with the word, with the difference between cli- climactic uh -huh. and climatic. I always get those mixed up, and I know that climatic has to do with weather, 
and climactic <laughs> has to do with, uh, but I can never remember which one is the right one until the very last second. And then I go, I'm waiting for somebody to say, oh, you mean climactic, right? Or, but no one does. So that's the good news. Well, you could say climaxic and that's a little more on the nose. Climaxic is really what it should be. Yeah, it should be. <laughs> we should rewrite the uh, English language. Okay. Well, then. Starting with climaxic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, um, after this ridiculous scene, we have another scene that's kind of, again, pushing this lightheartedness. We see this little kid. He's got a peanut sweatshirt on. He's kicking his ball. The ball goes into the traffic. The mother screams. The kid does some sort of a front flip. Uh, three cars collide because they don't want to hit him. And he runs off laughing. Ha ha ha. Um but it looks like he this. gets hit. It does. It? it looks like he gets hit. Because he goes I, flying I backwards. If... But he does like a flip off the front of the car. Yeah. And then he just gets up and runs off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and as he's running away, we see our, our hero, who hasn't been named yet, but it's Vince Dreyer. And he looks at the boy and thinks, oh my gosh, is he okay? And then he laughs at him. And... um. At that particular moment, I don't even want to start asking questions yet. At that, at that particular moment, the third car in this little fender bender that, all, that happened because no one wanted to run the kid over is a man with a pipe in his mouth. And it looks like he's pulling the pipe out of his mouth like he must have had it in his mouth. And he jammed the bumper of the car in front of him and the pipe kind of poked him in the back of the throat or something. Mm-hmm. And after he gets his pipe organization, you know, his pipe reorganized. He, he gets out of the car and you hear him say Vince. And then our hero says Wally. And it turns out that they know each other from 14 years ago playing college American football. Um, and I know this because uh, Vince says something about, or Wally says, yeah, you were the best center we ever had. And uh, Vince says, yeah, but you were the one um, calling the plays. So uh, that's definitely football, American football. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wally mentions at this point that he is a research chemist and has come to Italy to get married. His fiance's name is Lydia. And Vince describes himself as a detective for an insurance company. Um. And as the scene ends, we see a little bit more lightheartedness. The other two drivers who were in the fender bender get into a little bit of a argument or shouting match as the scene ends. So um, there we have it. The establishment of who these people are. And I will, I will now ask the, one of the first questions that we probably won't answer until later, which is, how much happenstance and serendipity was that whole thing with Vince and Wally meeting that in that way? Um, or how much of it was pre-planned and preempted and what have you? So um, if you want to take a whack at answering that now, go for it. But I still... I read a synopsis of this film that indicated that 
the meeting was purely by chance and by coincidence, and I find that kind of hard to believe. But they certainly act like it's a surprise, like he wasn't expecting him. I think they should have put in a line like uh, some sort of indication that Wally or Walter knew where he was. and he could have been expecting him just in a general sense, but maybe not exactly today when they bump in. It did cross my mind that maybe Walter had uh, planned the whole thing to try to make it look like it was by coincidence. Right. But from things that we find out later, I don't really see what would have been his benefit for that. Yeah. So, I don't know. If if the movie wants to tell us that, you know, in all of Italy, this guy just happens to be driving down the road when his best friend from, I don't know, college or high school football is standing on the side of the road. And if it wasn't for that kid getting, you know, bumper bounced by the car in front of him, he wouldn't have stopped long enough to even notice it. Okay. Sure. Right. Let's go with it. Well, and for everybody listening, you know, again, Al and I both recognize that these are movies and some of the times just far-fetched shit happens. But what we're trying to get to the bottom of is knowing what we know about Wally that happens later in the film, it's a, it's a suspicion of ours that that character may have planned to accidentally bump into Wally. We mm-hmm. just don't know the logistics and the specifics of it don't seem to make sense. So that's why kind of we're talking about it now. So Right. Trying because to find of, that balance. Because like of said. things that happen at the end, it doesn't make right. sense. Yeah. And the fact that this was based on a novel, I mean, I understand um if you're a screenwriter and you're just getting paid to crank out these scripts and you never really know which ones are going to get produced or not. So you're kind of fast and loose with, uh, plot holes and things like that. And God knows we've come across a million of those. That's one thing. But if you're a novelist, if you have this whole story written out in a book, there should be, fewer plot holes or at least not ones within the first hell we're only at the three minute mark (laughs) and we're already questioning what is this well and this is what i was going to mention because um when i watched the film again for the podcast i had watched it a few times already or at, at least twice because i did a jalo score page for date for a murder and watching it this time I paused, like I knew how the film opened and then I knew how the film kind of then moved on from all the stuff that happens in the beginning. And so watching it the third time, just recently, once we got to the point where all of this information has been given to us and now we're going to go run with it, I paused the movie and I looked down and it was 10 minutes. That's it. Just 10 minutes had gone by and there was so much information and so many things that were presented as, you know, where are we going with this? 
Not so much like, okay, the film opens, there's a dead body. Uh, somebody's been murdered. The cops come. Or there's an amateur detective. Okay, from there, we go off on our investigation. And, you know, and those that, that formula typically works for giallo films. But in this film, it's like, we don't even know what we're investigating. We don't even know why until later um, this is a mystery. So anyway, it's, you know, some people might call it a slow burn or it just takes time to develop. I don't know. It just seems to me like uh, the hardest part about this film is trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and does it matter to... <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's it. You know, like, do I really need to pay attention to these names in these places and what's happening? Or can I just watch it f haphazardly and, you know, then wait for the next thing to happen? So, um, okay. So in the next scene, we have this really odd looking shot of these couples dancing out by the coastline. Um, in like tuxedos and, and ball gowns, but they're dancing like on jetty rocks and <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, it, it, it's a very, I don't want to say weird looking because it has a, a bit of a, it has a bit of beauty to it, but it is odd. So, um, yeah, it's you know, still I, obviously I have, daytime. I mean, they're not yeah. even trying to pass it off as day for night. These people are dressed in what looks like, uh, I don't know, like they're going to the to a ball somewhere. Uh, yeah. The guys are wearing black suits. The girls are wearing, well, the ladies are wearing evening gowns. And they're, I, I don't know. I guess somewhere there's a source of music that they're dancing to, but. Besides right. the soundtrack, we don't really know where that comes from, but and there's really no explanation as to who these people are, what the event is. Is this a club? Is this a a party? But it's good. It's interesting you bring this up that it appeared that they were doing kind of a day for night shot. They wanted you to really feel like it was nighttime, even though you could tell it wasn't. But then what's interesting is the rest of the scene. Um, or for the next the next few scenes, it's still daytime. Like there's, it's the same day since Wally and Vince got to this hotel and they immediately cut to a scene that looks like we're at night. But then the next scenes after that, where Wally and Vince continue to talk about Lydia, it's, com it's obviously daytime. And uh, anyway, uh, I'll just fill in the gaps here. Um, we see Vince with his with his girlfriend or his lady of the evening or, you know, whatever you want to call her. And he says, you know, this is our last night together. Um, they stroll along the coach, the coast. And Wally is kind of sitting uh, up on a perch, kind of watching them. And then the woman that Vince is with says, oh, your friend offered uh, offered me a ride to Rome in the morning. Um and we need to remember that sort of, or do we? I, I don't really know. Well, um, it, it comes up later, but I don't know how much we need to worry about it. 
Uh, well, I, in considering, okay, I hate jumping back and forth like this without trying to spoil it. But no, I know, but it's it's not even that. It's just that this. How necessary this so is this whole element of the story? <laughs> and she's obviously wearing a wig, and get used to that because if you want to play a drinking <laughs> game, take a drink every time you. Do a shot every time you see, see a wig. wig. You'll be on the floor <laughs> by act two. But I think it's a blonde wig because we find out later she's Norwegian or something. So she's got to have that kind of uh, lady Viking yeah. look going on. But well, My whole problem with this specific part of the scene is that Vince never says anything to anyone about that she was with him the night before she gets into the car and does he know her? Is she just a prostitute? Is it this long time friend? Like how come he's not really saying or doing anything related to who this girl is? Like he, he's he trying has to find absolutely zero emotional connection with this woman, whoever she is, or if he yeah. does, he doesn't show it. And yeah, like you said, when he brings it up later, uh, he doesn't even acknowledge that he knows the girl. Right. And okay. That's I mean, what you're... confused me. You could start saying things like, well, maybe, you know, knowing what happens at the end, maybe Wally, you know, Walter Dempsey, he knew that girl. And, but. <sighs> You know, forget it. I'm going back to that <laughs> that thing where we say, ding, stop trying to break it apart too much. Uh, okay, so she says, oh, I wish we had more time, and they kiss, and then she says, meet me in my room in 10 minutes. So from there, Vince goes back to his room, and Wally knocks on the door. Um, and uh, he says, hey, I... I caught someone going through the things in my room. Um, they didn't steal anything, but I don't have any money if that's what they're looking for. And then the conversation completely cuts to them walking outside while they're in mid conversation. And um, <laughs> Wally's just like, you know what? I guess it wasn't anything serious. And then Wally tells, I keep saying Wally, but eventually it's going to be Dempsey. Uh, Dempsey tells them, tells the how we met story. Uh, about Lydia, who this is why he's in Italy. He's here to marry Lydia. He was a consultant and he was working as a, uh, she was working as a secretary in this town, uh, Riano, I think they say. Yeah. And Wally returns to America and writes her, because I guess for the time where he was working as a consultant, and she was the secretary, they must have developed some sort of a relationship. So when he goes back to America, he writes to her, but she doesn't respond. Um, but five years later, he gets a postcard from her. Um, and they mention the name of the town, and I have it written down as Via Mexico. Is that right? Well, that's the street address. Oh, so when he's... When, when they're, yeah, that's true, because every time they say Via something, it's the street address. Right. So... Is is via Mexico in the town of Riano, or am I wrong about that? You know, I did Google via Mexico just to see where it was, 
and it turns out there's one in the city of Ferrara, and there's another one in the city of Padua, or Padova. I was expecting it to be somewhere near Rome, and there might be one in Rome, but uh, the fact that Ferrara and Padova popped up before Rome did, I didn't waste too much time you know, going through right. pages and pages of Google results. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. But... Um, yeah, so. I wouldn't either. <laughs> and and the whole thing about somebody was in my room, nothing comes of that. No, not a thing. That that leads to zero. It is never brought up again. It has nothing to do with anything else that happens in the rest of the film. I don't think. But well, anyway, I mean, let later me tell on you. we later on we find out that someone has a tail on Walter Dempsey. And they know that he's at the hotel. So did someone go into his room and look for something? Maybe. Um, That may be what it was, but nothing comes of it. So, Well, yeah. You were going to say something. Well, I I had the the video playing, so it's kind of went ahead a little bit. And I just connected a dot that we're about to get to in a minute. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, according to the postcard that he gets from Lydia, she's waiting for him. And so, as soon as he got that postcard, he headed right to uh, Rome to go see her. And after that, there's a quick scene where Vince's girl is drinking scotch and waiting for him in her room. Uh, and the, But they come back immediately to Vince and Wally still talking. Um, and they agree... To have a date. And this is where the date is actually set up. They say, hey, uh, or Wally says, hey, I'm going to be in Rome. Should we meet and hang out? And Vince is like, yeah, okay. How about three or four days later? And um, so I think they made a date for either the 11th or the 12th of whatever month this is. And it's currently the 9th. Um, And I think they want you to to hear about that because it's going to be important. I don't know how important it is, but... Um, they, they go specifically to tell you, you know, to pay attention to these dates. Um, and then (laughs) at the end of the scene, Wally says, you know, uh, I'll see you in Rome. And when I'm there, I have something really important to tell you. And of course it's the same old question. Like, why not just tell me now? (laughs) Tell me now. (laughs) Uh, these Jalo people never learn. They never learn. Uh, so then we, um, we cut back to Vince returning, uh, to his date, I guess. Um, they don't really show the two of them together in any sort of, uh, sexual scene. I don't think, um, Vince just says, Hey, I'm going to be in the doghouse," And then we see a little bit more of Wally walking around outside by the water. And then that's the moment. When Wally's outside walking around, there's a pool, there's a dog there, and they start to play that main theme. And it's just on a piano at that point. Mm -hmm. But that is when the main theme comes in, and we will hear that theme repeated in various places throughout the the film here. And and, and like I said before, I think it was well done and and well, well used. So, um. But the very next thing we see is the next morning and Vince is 
laying in his bed with his pajamas on and his giant foot in our face because that was the <laughs> the angle that they used. And the phone rings and it's his date from the night before. And Vince says, I'm leaving at noon for Capri. Is that what he says? Yeah. And um, while he's on the phone with the girl, he hears a knock at the door and Wally comes in and... The girl says, okay, you have company. So Vince hangs up the phone. Then they had this really cool shot where the room is divided in the center of the frame. And Wally comes in and and sits down on the right side. And Vince sits down on the left side. And they can't see each other. They have their backs to each other. Um, But they're both on screen at the same time. It was, uh, I thought it was well-framed and uh, kind of artistic. And, And this is... Not the first time. I mean, one of the things that I can say this film has going for it is that it's, as far as the cinematography and the um, the, the, the general direction of the shots and the movement of the shots and whether they decide to use handheld or dolly or um, what angles they take, I think that was all really well done and very entertaining, um, which is makes the film easier to watch when you're not paying attention to it, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, the giant foot angle. Um, anyway, (laughs) uh, so, and then there's this next thing that I wasn't sure if they did it on purpose or not, but Vince is shaving in the mirror. He's got himself on the screen. He's got himself through the mirror and he has his face coming through the close up mirror all at the same time. I don't know if they framed that scene purposely that way, but um, Wally comes in and he says he's taking two Norwegian girls with him to Rome. Now, Vince knows that one of those is his girl, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, I was just banging her last night. Have fun. You know, like, <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't mention it at all. Anyway. And um, you have to wonder, because ostensibly... Walter, Wally, whatever Dempsey's name is, his whole goal in coming was to hook up with this Lydia woman from years ago that he'd been, he's decided he's going to marry her. And almost the second or third thing out of his mouth is, oh, I found these two Norwegian girls I'm going to take to Rome with me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I guess it's. I mean, it's, it's the summer of love, apparently, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, okay. And, and then to top it off, yeah, like you said, um, Vince doesn't even mention, oh yeah, that was, uh, that was a girl I was with all night. So. It's, yeah. It, it's, it's ponderous as they say. Right. Um, so uh, Vince tells Walter that he made a reservation at the Hotel Sav- Savoia, I think he says. Savoy would be the English. Okay, the Hotel Savoy. And that um, Walter should call him there on the 12th. Again, we mentioned the 12th. Mm-hmm. Um, Vince looks out of his little very next cut. Vince is looking out from the balcony of his room and sees the two girls. Uh, getting in the car, and then we see blonde-haired, red-jacket guy yeah. also getting in the car. Um, mm-hmm. And we hear that main theme again as they drive away. So it's 
Walter, the two girls, one of which is the one that Vince was with, and some guy we've never seen before with a red jacket on, which typically when you see somebody with a red jacket, you think waiter, you know, porter, I guess. At least that's what I got from it, but... Yeah, I thought he was like the parking valet at first. Right, and then he, he right. gets in the car. And I'm like, oh, you're, okay, he's taking everybody with him. So, yep. But we do see so him that, later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely do. So we see him a couple of times, actually. So I paused it. This is when I paused it at um, nine minutes and 50 seconds. And it's like, see what we see how much time we just spent going through this nonsense? Like... It's only yeah. 10 minutes in. So, and, and, and when I was watching it, I was going, okay, well, maybe the scene by scene is going to be easier after this 10 minutes. I'm like, nope. It just gets, it gets crazier and crazier. So uh, the next scene is at the dog racetrack. And there is a very quick pan across from left to right. And we see some faces that will show up again later. We see the guy who works in the auto garage. We see the Salvatorelli guy. And we see the guy in the wheelchair. Um, we also see a man getting a phone call. And he comes out and he goes over to this person who will we'll know as Salvatorelli later on. Um, and he says, he left your tail with two people 10 minutes ago. He picked up a couple of broads. And... Eventually, the man in the wheelchair starts laughing and says, I hope he's going to enjoy his trip. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> now, when I watched this, I thought the man in the wheelchair was the boss because why shouldn't he be, right? Like, he's the oldest one. Right. And that's kind of how they're portrayed. Like, the, the head honcho is usually the oldest one. So, But it's not. It's uh, one of the other guys. So that's all we get. Um. And the, the guy runs over yeah, there to give them the message about the tail lost him. I mean, he runs over there like it's the most urgent thing in the world. And the second time I watch this, I'm thinking, okay, the red jacket guy who we will see later, he must have been the tail. Or right, I thought he would have been the tail, but then how do you lose him? And maybe he mentions that later in the film, but... Something's going on with I don't, these guys, and yeah, I don't think he does. If we're if we're gonna go ahead with the the things we already know about mm -hmm. um, the ending, um, not even the ending, but some of the some of the secrets that we haven't gotten to yet. Like, if that guy is the tail, then I'm not even gonna answer that question. Let's 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 keep going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> forget it um so the next scene we have vince uh who's made it to rome and he's looking for um walter because i think at this point the 12th has come and gone and walter never showed up he goes to see somebody who is this the highway patrol or is this the police or who's he talking to here some type of policeman okay uh but it, he it's says that, uh, funny okay. that he would go straight to that. I mean, the guy didn't show up, and he's late. You can't find him, and you go to the police and say, have there been any Americans in a car accident? I mean, the guy took off with two Norwegian girls. He could be 
you know, halfway to Scandinavia by now. I mean, right. it seems kind and, of flighty. And, <laughs> but. and that's exactly what the policeman says. He's like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. He's probably on tour somewhere. Yeah. Um, well, meanwhile, see, the thing I kind of got from this the second time is that, you know, what we don't see is that Vince returns or Vince gets to Rome. He checks into his hotel. A couple of days go by. And when he, um, after he leaves the, this guy that he's talking to about the, the auto accidents, he goes back to his hotel and he stops at the front desk and you can hear that the front desk guy says, you know, he's called, um, all these other hotels and there's no sign of, uh, of, um, Wally being registered anywhere else. And this particular scene, I feel like they did some sort of a distraction thing on purpose because Vince comes in, he's talking to the the guy at the front desk. And while they're in the middle of a conversation, this woman comes over and says, do you have a package for me? And he gives it to her and she says, thank you. And then she walks off and all of that's happening while Vince and the, and the front desk guy are having a conversation. So it's just like, you know, well, I feel, I feel like this happens a lot in Italian movies. Like the directors put these awkward situations in where like something's happening on the main part of the screen, but also something else is happening up in the corner of the screen. And it's distracting. Like Argento did that in a bunch of his films. Mm -hmm. Um, like there's a scene in like, I think it's cat of nine tails maybe, or maybe deep red where, you know, the, the main investigation is going on there in the police, uh, station. And then in the background, like some criminal that they had handcuffed gets loose and it starts a fight and there's like a, a brawl in the back of the, the back of the hallway, but you're not really supposed to look at that because meanwhile, the the commissioner and the, and uh, you know, the police inspector and the uh, amateur detective are talking about stuff. That's important. You know, it seems like they do that a lot in these Italian movies. I just consider this to be Rachel Maddow's uh, cameo. A little (laughs) walk in speaking part. It does look like her. (laughs) I appreciated it for that. Um, I think a lot of times they do that to kind of just break up the monotony of the scene. Oh, and yeah, okay. how exciting can it be for him to stand there and just talk to the hotel clerk? Or to give the illusion that the place is busier than it actually is. Because, uh, you right. know, if they're filming yeah, I, it, they're not allowing people, you know, like actual real life uh, hotel clients to come in and out and interrupt the scene. Yes. Right. I think that now that I'm thinking about it, you know, this was something that Hitchcock did too in some of his films where he would have two different things going on on the screen at the same time. A lot of it was something that you would only notice for a second, like his cameos and that sort of thing. So, right. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, Vince is about to go up to his room but then he goes back to the front desk guy and he says, can you tell me where Via Mexico is? Um, and if you weren't paying attention earlier, uh, this is where the postcards that were sent to Wallace or not Wallace Walter 
um, from Lydia originated. So I guess Vince decides that he's going to do a little bit more investigating. And when Vince leaves and he hands his key back to the front desk guy and he walks out, the, the front desk guy, in my version, says, Prego. Is that what you would say to somebody in that situation? Or was that not the right word? Uh, that's the word that they use for, like, you're welcome. Oh, okay. Got it. It can mean other things, too, but in that context, you know, you say grazie, thank you, and then prego, you're welcome. Okay, so that's a that's like a denada. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so next scene, we see Vince um, driving in this really slick white Jaguar. Um, and we've got this up-tempo, jazzy thing going on. But if you pay attention, it is the same theme that we heard two times already. Uh, let's see. And we get a little bit of a montage. Vince is going from building to building, looking for Lydia. <laughs> um, and... He gets to the final stop and we see this automated garbage can and the old man in the wheelchair is there and his ears kind of perk up when he hears Vince asking about Lydia. Um, so Vince gets back into his car after the guy uh, he's, he's talking to some, some kid who looks like a courier or paper boy or something. And he's like, no, I don't know anyone called Lydia. Um, so Vince gets back in his car and he's, as soon as he sits down, he's knocked on the back of the head and, uh, rendered unconscious. Um, and then we cut to a night scene where we see the drive, the Jaguar driving down the road. But then we also notice that it's not being driven by Vince anymore. It's a couple of thugs and Vince is in the back seat and they, bring the car over to something that was way too dark for me to figure out exactly what it was, but it ends up being like the edge of a cliff. But there's also like this weird kind of water moat or um, reservoir or something where they first stop the car. And uh, they, they pull Vince out and they, they cut the, uh, the rope that was, they had tied his hands behind his back with and they stick him in the front seat and they push the car off the cliff. And, um, and they, they <clears throat> pour some gasoline inside also. Oh, I didn't see that part. Okay. They put, they, they pour gasoline inside the car and, and to help with the uh, fiery crash. Okay. Right. Yeah. So they push the car down the cliff. It starts to go and, it's very hard to make out, but Vince wakes up at the very last minute and you see his hand grab the door, door handle. And then we see the car burst into flames um, and crash. Now, what I thought was interesting is how they did the next scene, which was it's morning time. Um, and we see Vince and he's all disheveled and he's walking down the road and he gets picked up by a truck driver. But I noticed both times that I watched this, that this scene seems like it's purposely rendered out of focus and shaky and uh, just to kind of, I guess, give us the feeling of this is the way Vince is feeling right now. Like his, he almost died and he's, it's the next morning and he's trying to get home and 
he can't focus, he's tired, he's hurt, whatever. And I got that feeling from the way that they filmed this little scene. Did you get that, uh, Al, or was I just trying to be artistic? Yeah, I I felt like I had a head injury watching yeah. that scene. And I was reaching for my uh, drama mean, frankly. But Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think that's um, it's pretty good to put us in a, a subjective shot like that from his point of view. Yeah. Uh, I thought the dialogue between him and the guy that picked him up was a little bit clever. Uh, yeah. It was kind of, it was kind of funny. Yeah. But then it just cuts to him waking up in a bed someplace completely different. Is this another hotel or is this his actual, I I don't, well, no, he doesn't live there. So I guess it would all be hotels. So, yeah, I think he's still I think he's still at the same hotel. I mean, we don't up until this point we haven't really seen his room at the hotel yet. We just see him going into the lobby and then leaving again. Um But yeah, so the next scene right after that, we've got um Vince under a whole bunch of covers. You see there's a little bottle of Cuddy Sark scotch and a pack of cigarettes and the phone rings and the hand reaches out for it from under the blankets and I think it's the front desk saying that um, the American embassy wants to see Vince and Vince says, okay, tell him I'll be there in an hour. So then we cut to the embassy, uh, front, the front gates of the embassy. And, um, <laughs> this next scene is so silly, um, and pre- peculiar Vince gets this call, um, through the American embassy from someone named Kent Forrester, um, who's calling from his sailboat and, he asks Vince to keep an eye on his daughter named Fadelia because her mother liked Beethoven. And, <laughs> but no, but he, she's called Fidelia, not because not this, she didn't like Beethoven and that's why you have to watch her. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Her name like, is Fidelia because right. of, and because of Beethoven. Right. Right. So yeah. I like, I like Vince's response here. He says, I, I always oblige a friend. So I'd rather turn this down on principle. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm assuming that he's saying, Hey, you're not a friend of mine. Um, but <laughs> and why is he getting this call at the embassy? <laughs> I don't know. And why is the guy laying in a hammock inside a sailboat with three <laughs> women you know, one's one's doing a pedicure on him, and one's fanning him, and the other one's massaging him. Uh, <laughs> well, hey, if you can get away with it, go for it. But yeah, it, the, this is just a weird situation. Yeah, well, and, and because you have to remember back then, how do you? Oh, l- let me call this guy. Where could he be? Okay, let me call the hotel. He's not in his room. Did he say where he's going? Well, he's going to the embassy. Well, then let me just call the embassy. I mean, how does that work? And then somebody at the embassy is like, "Oh, here's a here's a phone call for you." I've but been they inside. Call him at his. They call him at his hotel to say he has a phone call at the embassy. So, like, they did. Like this guy, Kent Forrester, he didn't call the hotel. If he had just called the hotel, he would have gotten Vince. And they, he wouldn't have had to go to the embassy. <laughs> right, but we, we see the embassy. Right. And once he gets there, they hand him the phone call. Like, there's, that, yeah. there's, a, there's a guy in the film that's on screen a few times, and I guess he's the embassy representative that... 
that Vince works a, with. I, but he he doesn't really say much, and he's only in a couple of scenes, so you don't you know you don't really pay attention to him if you're not looking. But and see that would kind of tie into a Eurospy thing too, because if it was right, this, I mean, if they pointed out without us trying to guess it, like it's a David Lynch film, that he was somehow connected with the embassy as like some kind of state department agent and by agent, I don't mean just a, a shoot him up spy, but just, you know, some security type person for the embassy right. that would explain his suitcase full of guns and why people are calling him at the embassy to get them to babysit their daughter. Right. <laughs> but yeah, this has, this has all the earmarks of a spy uh, thriller, but you know, Vince describes himself as a, a babysitter for grownups. Um, right, and he seems to be working as a free agent. Right, because if he if he worked for the embassy, the embassy would say, "Look, you're going to take care of this guy's daughter." Yeah, and him saying, "Well, I usually work for friends, so go fuck yourself." That's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very official and definitely uh, not subservient to any uh, institution or anything. So, <laughs> well, Kent says um, that you can find Fidelia hanging out wherever the beatniks are. Oh, um, <laughs> that okay. place. Okay, <laughs> that place. Wherever the beatniks are. But luckily for Vince. Um, he doesn't have to go to where the beatniks are because after he ends the call, his embassy representative comes over and says that Kent's daughter has just arrived and she's a bit explosive. And now this is the thing I'm really confused about because do they have a skeet shooting range at the embassy or did off camera, Vince meet up with Fidelio and they decide, hey, let's go to the skeet shooting place and finish our conversation. Like, I just don't understand it, why all of a sudden we're shooting skeets. Or, and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, like, isn't there an Umberto Lenzi film where they actually have birds that come out of the traps and they shoot them? Because that, uh, that was something that they did, right? That was like a hobby. Did they do that in a muck, or were they just hunting in a muck? I think they were just hunk, hunting in a muck. Okay. But well, anyway, it sounds familiar, like... but I can't place it. Okay, so our hero, Vince Dreiser, gets a phone call to go to the embassy. He gets to the embassy, and they're telling him, oh, this Mr. Forrester, who's obviously rich enough to have three women pampering him while he's on his yacht, Needs you to babysit his daughter. So is that was why he got called to the embassy? I don't know. Because some rich guy snapped his fingers and said, I need somebody to watch my daughter. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what I'm talking about right here. Yeah. This is the how far down this ridiculous rabbit hole do we need to go? <laughs> um, the whole point of introducing all of this besides making you feel like maybe you're watching a spy film and maybe it's tying into the spy films you've seen before because you live in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, 
This is also to, to give us a reason why the Fidelia character is here and give this actress, who I guess needed to get exposure in this movie, some attention and break up the monotony of just the pure detective story. And we're going to try to introduce a love story here. Um, this whole Fidelia thing is introduced the way it is. And it seems like it's going to be a side story or a parallel story that you expect to intertwine or come together in a significant, interesting way. And I'm not sure that it does. No, it definitely doesn't. But um, I'm wondering if they were trying to plant some sort of seed that, you know, at least in the beginning, you're led to believe that this Fidelia character needs a chaperone for some sort of reason. And the reason could be that she's involved in dangerous business. And, you know, because we know that this is called date for a murder and because we know that uh, Walter is missing, perhaps she may be involved, but, um, you know, they started out that way because he's supposed to be in kind of watching out for her, but ultimately things change in their relationship. So, right. Uh, anyway, I wrote in my notes, Vince and Fidelia have an exchange. That's not worth paying attention to. <laughs> Fidelia leaves and Vince runs into a man who tells him to stay away from Fidelia He's a British man with blonde hair. But after Vince gives him some money, Vince tells him that they are going to the Rolling Night Club or Rolling Night Nightclub. And um, so Fidelia and the blonde haired, long haired British guy get into a car and drive away very quickly, which um, is the signal for whoever this guy is who's still there operating the skeet shooting Italian embassy <laughs> drive through or whatever. Uh, he yeah. runs out and says, you guys are crazy. You're going to get killed. Just like those two Norwegian girls. Just and like those soon, two Norwegian girls just like that the whole Norwegian town girls. is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but of course the police haven't heard anything yet. Um, uh, so Vince, his ears perk up and he's like, what? And so Vince, uh, calls the highway patrolman again or the cop or whatever. And he's like, oh, well, you were looking for your friend Walter. And you didn't say anything <laughs> about Norwegian girls. Yeah. Uh, so a lie of omission, I guess you could call that. Um, so this time he confirms that there, there are two girls that were, mur that were killed in a car wreck, not murdered. Um, but there's no mention of Walter in the report. Um, and then uh, Vince gets the license plate for the car that they rented, which is the first thing that he does to start pursuing this mystery in full force. Yeah. So that clue leads him to the garage where these cars are rented. And as he's traveling to the car garage we get a little bit of a travel log um with some 
nice jazz music playing, up-tempo. And we uh, notice Vince- that he's driving the largest car in all of Rome. Because apparently somebody took their American convertible to Europe. See yes. That- what, what, yeah, what kind of car is that? I don't know. It's, it's just some kind of land yacht. It, it reminds me of the time my, uh, my great uncle took his Cadillac to Ostuni and got it stuck in the alley because it was too big. <laughs> I still tell people that I'm friends with that story because it's such a good one. Yeah. But it yeah so well I he, guess he's got to drive something because his Jaguar bit the cliff you know but right right absolutely well that was at let me see here twenty two minutes I want to take a look at it real quick yeah it's a boat. Yeah, there's the shot, like right at 2148, when the convertible is passing a Cinquecento, which are like the smallest cars in Europe. So just to give you an idea of this, the scale. 48? 2148, yeah. Oh, yeah! <laughs> That's a great, I may decide to put that as the uh, cover for okay. the, 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 the page next time. Anyway, yeah. It's like, gee, which one is the American? (laughs) (laughs) It's the uh, 1967 version of Make America Great Again hat. Yeah. I guess. So uh, Vince parks the car. He goes over and there's somebody working on the car. And Vince immediately starts um, uh, attacking him. He knees him right in the face, um, gives him a couple of kicks. And then he ends up... um, Going over to what looks like some sort of a trash can and lights a fire or pours some gasoline on the ground and lights a fire um, and lets it sit there and burn. I don't know why, but then he goes and pours gas on this man that he's already beaten up and he asks him if he wants a light. I guess the threat is not only am I going to light you on fire, but I've also got a fire going on here and... Or, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe he's testing the gasoline to see if it would ignite. I don't know. Like, why does he do this? Why does he light this little fire in the corner here? It seems pretty risky because what's in the bigger barrel right? underneath? I mean, what if that was also gas? But... So yeah, okay. so he pours the gas he pours the gas on the guy that's on the ground, and he says, Do you want to light? And um <laughs> and there's a fire extinguisher directly above the guy. <laughs> yeah, there is. Hey, look at that. That's funny. Um, My question we... is... Go ahead. He walks into the garage and he immediately attacks the guy. When did he see this guy? He was clubbed well, in the back of the head as soon as he got in his car. He was on the floorboard, basically knocked out until you know the very last second he jumped out of the car. How does he know to have a beef with this guy at the garage? Well, I think that we're we're establishing at this point that Vince is a hothead. <laughs> he's, you know, he's got his gun everywhere he goes and you know, it's and maybe he's a hothead because 
uh, he's so smart and he can figure out who he's supposed to be interrogating like before he even meets them. Um, or maybe he just likes to beat people up, you know, to get information. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, we know but, this is a guy that attacked him in the car. I'm just wondering right, how and we he also, knows because he's acting like he definitely knows this is a guy that attacked him in the car. Yeah, well, we're yeah. going to throw that into the suspend disbelief box with right. all the other ones. Um, the box that gets bigger every time. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know, but I think I noticed when the camera was panning left to right at the dog track that this guy was also in that shot, too. Yeah. So um, we've seen him before. And um, let's see. His name is Mario Galante. And he says that it was Guido Salvatorelli who paid him to booby trap the car that killed the Norwegian girls. But Mario didn't know that the girls would be in the car um, when he booby-trapped it. And uh, he says that... Uh, and, and the interesting part about this scene is that um, Mario tells Vince that Guido lives in on Via Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. But um, he's never heard of anybody named Lydia. And he doesn't know where Walter is. He doesn't know anything about Walter or Lydia. Um, so Vince calls in the next scene, Guido, uh, pretending to be Mario. And uh, <laughs> there's a funny exchange where um, Guido is getting, having sexy time with some sort of woman. And he's like, just get, get away. And he shoves her. <laughs> All the way like onto the floor and she doesn't run away. She just sits there uh, playing with the beach ball. Yeah. So awesome. he says, so yeah. So he's like, I can't talk here. I'm going to, I'm going to meet you at the something. Where do they meet? Some sort of town square or something like that. He mentions the arches. Oh, okay. And meet you at the arches. Yeah. Okay. So then we see uh, another little montage travel log, but this time it's Vince driving at night and they're playing the main theme again. And this was done really well with like Vince being in a very dark, uh, not lit whatsoever, but all the lights coming from the exterior shots of all the places and, and signs of things that he's driving through in, in Rome in, at this time of night it was a pretty cool shot. Um, now, Guido gets dropped off at the arches and he's walking around a little bit and he notices the giant American car. And when he does, <laughs> Vince pops up and tries to shoot him. Um, Hit right off the bat immediately. Just like and there's and then a, like a a shootout with one person who's driving ensues. <laughs> and Vince is like shooting at the air like legitimately at one point his hand came out and, and shot up into the air and i think that was the shot that that hit so i, I don't know what the hell was going on in that scene but um it was well, pretty, you, you mentioned the cops-ish yeah it looks ridiculous and not very well thought out at all but you mentioned that guido noticed the big american car do you think that when Vince called Guido, 
Guido notice the big fat American accent when he was pretending to be uh, <laughs> Mario? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, look, if if Guido has been in touch with Mario before to talk about the details of these <laughs> things that need to be, you know, that need to be worked out, you would think that he would know what his voice sounded like. He knows his voice. Yeah. So between the voice and the accent, uh, I'm surprised Guido didn't just show up with a van full of dudes with guns and bats and stuff, you know? Exactly. Ex- so, one more for the some, box. Some, yeah, well, somehow Vince is not only an international spy, but he's um, a, a master impersonator. And yeah, we just the, don't know it. The Don Rickles of espionage. <laughs> Uh, okay. So again, we're in this crazy shooting scene. Um, eventually, uh, Vince lands his killing blow with his gun and then takes off. Um, next scene we get hippies dancing. Yay. It's a score for me. Um, Fidelia is there. She's dancing with the British guy. And she's wearing what I labeled as the ostrich hat or the ostrich wig. One way or the other, it looks like a, some sort of a bird. Um, yeah. Especially with those weird little black tassels hanging off. <laughs> um, so Vince arrives and um, goes up to her and says, look, um, I want you to sign these papers that say I'm not protecting you anymore. And then I want you to call your father and tell him that I'm not watching you anymore. And, um, so they do that. And then, um, we see somebody walking through the crowd and I forgot who it was, but it's the same embassy person. Um, and he finds Vince and he takes Vince to the police station. Um, and then Fidelia, sees him go and she's like, I'm not going to let him stand me up. And so she follows him. And after they leave the club, the next scene we see Vince um, and this embassy guy in the office of the police commissioner. Now his name is, what's his name again? Uh, Commissioner Junto or Junta. Let me see. Junta. Okay. That might be right. I never got his name. So I just kept writing down the commissioner. Yeah, Commissioner Junta. Okay. Um, and also in this scene, there is a city map on the wall, which is a point on the Jello score. <clears throat> yeah, cool. The, co- the, co- <laughs> the commissioner is pissed um, because Vince killed Guido. Um, and he says, I'm going to investigate this because you're a killer. And uh, they have this really cool camera angle with this oscillating fan in the foreground that's going back and forth while they're, the scene is going on. Um, so Vince storms out. They took his gun, right? Did they take his gun? Yeah, and his, his passport. gun and his passport. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he opens the door and Fidelia is sitting there waiting for him. And he walks out the door without her. And really quickly, they go back, and the commissioner is telling um, the embassy guy 
that Guido's gun was empty, which means that Vince should have known that he didn't have any more bullets and he could have taken him alive. And I forget exactly what the embassy rep says, but it's really quick. He's like, okay, or I didn't know, or something like that at the end of the scene. It's really weird. Well, I have to wonder about Vince because he's, you know, like we said earlier, he's hot-headed. But if his goal at all is to find out what happened to his good buddy, Walter Dempsey, he walks into the garage. The first thing he does is beat the shit out of the guy. Then that leads him to Guido Salvatorelli. He finds Guido Salvatorelli or lures him with his uh, telephone superhero powers to show up and just immediately starts firing at him. How are you going to find out anything about what happened to your friend if you kill people as soon as they show up? Right. Okay. This is what Vince does. He shoots first and asks questions later, I guess. Yeah, but it's not like he shot Salvatorelli and then got out of the car and said, hey, before you die, where's my friend? <laughs> right. He just, ro- <laughs> he just drove away. Yes. <laughs> He's terrible as a spy. Yeah. He's a good detective, though. Ay, ay, ay. Okay. Anyway. Um, so back in Vince's hotel room, we're getting this nice sultry saxophone version of this main theme again. Yeah. Um, and Vince is stewing. He's pissed. And he looks like somebody's trying to break into his room. The doorknob turns and he smacks this uh, <laughs> another another uh, wig version of Fidelia. Um, this might be the same one she was wearing skeet shooting, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I think it was. So... Um, he feels bad about this. So he carries her and puts her on his bed. And, um, once she wakes up, um, she starts fighting with him. She's like, Oh, it was you. And he does this weird thing where he kind of like incapacitates her and holds her down. Like he's, um, going to force himself on her or at least incapacitate her so that she can't be dangerous. And then suddenly things turn sexy and all of a sudden they're hanging half off the bed with their heads upside down, (laughs) kissing with their eyes open in this, the worst theatrical kiss I've ever seen. Um, I, I have exactly that in my notes. (laughs) This is the worst kiss in cinema history. (laughs) Um, I really felt like maybe she was not interested in doing this and was going along with it against her will to a certain extent. But um, eventually, as we know from, you know, 1960s machismo um, in the era before Me Too, that, of course, all women want this to happen eventually to them. and they will all succumb to the forceful male, and that's just the way it goes. But uh, I'm not saying I promote that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just trying to give everybody an idea as to what the culture was like at that particular point in history. Don't cancel us. Oh, wait, it's too late. There's nothing to cancel. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So um, Vince invites her to stay and gives her 
these pajamas. And then there's this little fashion scene. Um, it almost sounded like the main theme for Bird with the Crystal Plumage at this point. It's like uh, Vince lights up a cigarette and she's putting on her clothes and she's topless, but she has her back to him. And then she puts the top on and she's looking at herself in the mirror. And it's very, uh, it's very uh, lighthearted. But also, um, if it weren't for the masks, remember last episode we were talking about the Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana test? Right. Um, she she does not pass it. She is, um, I don't find her attractive at all. <laughs> and I kind of don't either. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the uh, <laughs> the wigs help and sometimes they make it worse. So, uh, <laughs> I wonder what her real hair looked like at the time of this filming. I mean, Maybe she just shaved her head bald until the whole thing was over. It's got to be. Because she knew in every scene she's going to have a different wig. Yeah. Yeah, I guess at certain angles she she looks good. I mean, there's there's some close-ups of her combing the hair on the wig and the close-ups of the cigarette and whatnot. Um, Yeah. It's a pretty interesting scene, so. And from some of the stills that I saw from the police are blundering in the dark, I think she wears a wig in that, too. So. Mm. There's a mystery for the ages. Maybe she has alopecia like Will Smith's wife. <laughs> Keep my wife's name out of your fucking <laughs> your mouth. mouth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy, culture. Isn't it fun? Um, yeah. Okay. So after this little fashion scene, we go to the slot car racetrack. And this is a this is an opportunity for me to also mention that I noticed one of the things that is kind of a trope of these films that I don't really I don't think fully take advantage of once we get into classic Jalo, but they really like to film these things that the jet set people and the bourgeois people like participate in, whether it be dog racing or slot car racing, or I know we saw slot car races in Murder by Music, uh, or the skeet shooting. Uh, you know, there's all of these kind of like, you know, interesting competitive pastimes that uh, are, you know, uh, that, that have some, some screen time in these films. And I think this one is like, uh, this film is is trying to establish that. Like if you look at, the the second of the three Umberto Lenzi um, films that came out before Bird, the middle one I think, <clears throat> with John Sorrell and uh, Carol Baker, I think it was called Paranoia, but also called um, A Quiet Place to Kill. There was mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of vibe in in that movie too, like this kind of vibe of the jet setting slick. But not so much the spy thing. It's it was less of a spy thing and more of a uh, of a giallo. But anyway, um, it looks like a really cool track. Like I would like to go and and try my hand at riding the cars through this thing. It looks pretty cool. Yeah. But um, anyway, the whole purpose of being there is that that's where the police commissioner is when he's not on duty. Um, Vince stops by with the embassy guy and says, can I have my gun back and my passport back? And he says, no. Um, 
But at the very end of the scene, the commissioner turns to Wally and um, he's, uh, no, I'm sorry. He doesn't turn to Wally. He turns to Vince and he says, um, he, he brings up uh, Walter and he says that he is suspicious that this Lydia situation was just some sort of a plot to lure Walter to Italy. And then he turns to Vince and he says, well, what would you do next if you were still investigating this case? <laughs> um, and so we then get, uh, let's see, what happens after that? Um, they go back to talk to Mario, but he's not at the garage, right? I think. Yeah, he drops the name of, well, I don't have him written down, of the the Mario guy, right? The guy from the garage. Galante, yeah. Right, Galante. And as soon as he mentions Galante, the commissioner Junta forgets about the race, because apparently I think he was one of the, the racers. And you see his car crash, and he just immediately stands up as soon as he hears that name. So that must have he must have been on that same trail independently or on okay. his own. I didn't. I guess I didn't make that connection. I think I wasn't paying close enough attention to um what Junta was doing in the in in the racetrack, like how how much he was participating in it. But that makes sense. Well, there's a <clears throat> shot of him holding the little controller and kind of pumping right. the, the little gas pedal with his thumb. Yep. Um. So once they find out that Mario's not at the, the, the garage, they go to his house. I guess they show this really extremely large apartment complex. And I think this oh. is still... Wait, hang on, uh, hang on. Via Me Mexico? There's a little shot in between that where they go to the garage to look for Galante. And there's a guy leaning against the building smoking a cigarette with that woman. Oh, is this the cameo? That's the cameo. That guy with the cigarette leaning against the wall, that is Mino Guarini, the director. Okay, I'm going back to it now. Let's see. Hang on. Uh, it's at 3945. Thereabouts. He only has two lines, and there's only one shot, I think, of him. The Fiat pulls up next to the garage, and they're walking over. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see him. He's smoking a cigarette standing next to the girl. That's the director. Huh. That's the director. Yep. Pretty cool. Things you learn on this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> so they leave to go find uh so they leave to go find Mario at his home. And when they finally find his apartment, we cut to them running up the stairs really fast. Um, we don't really know why it's so urgent all of a sudden. They were just going to go look for Mario, but yeah. all of a sudden it's urgent. And once they break in, they realize 
that the gas has been left on and all the windows are open. Now, I don't know how they knew that before they got there and why it was so urgent to run up the stairs, but it turns out that Mario has been, looks like he's been killed by gas poisoning. And so um, Junta calls uh, for the morgue to come and check out the body. And then they decide that they're going to go visit Guido Salvatorelli, I think. Mm -hmm. So then they show you that big shot of the, uh, of the apartment complex in Via, Via Mexico. I keep wanting to say Mexico, but it's obviously not. Um, So they get to Guido's place and he's not there. There's nobody there. Um, Well, okay. So this is Guido Salvatorelli's place. Right. Isn't that the guy that Vince just killed at the arches that night? Correct. So he wouldn't be there. Obviously he's dead. So they're just there to snoop around his place. Yeah, right. They they went okay. to look for clues, I guess. Okay. Um, when they don't really find any, they go out the door and we run into um, Red Jacket Man again. Now, I think, didn't we see him? No, I guess we didn't. I thought maybe we saw him when, when Vince was walking around asking about Lydia and the old man in the wheelchair was, was eavesdropping. I don't know if we saw him there. I can't remember. But it doesn't matter. Um, I don't know. So he pretends that he's looking for somebody else, but um, Junta and Vince are wise to him and they force him up the stairs. And um, let's see. And when they lead him up the stairs, they leave it, lead him up to the roof to ask him about Walter. And he says that he dropped Walter off at a villa outside of town. And I'm confused now because I'm still (laughs) trying to figure out who was in the car and why they were in the car and why the car blew up. If this guy is telling the truth, which he might not be, um, Okay, so we saw this guy with the red jacket at the beginning of the film. He left with Dempsey or Walter and the two Norwegian girls. Correct. Now he's telling us that he dropped Walter off at the villa out in the country that we'll get to eventually. Were the two Norwegian girls still around? Did he drop them off too? Or did he just drop off Walter and go away with the two Norwegian girls? Or they're dead. So I mean, so they were. We're we're still. I guess we're still trying to figure out in this part of the movie that this whole thing, as far as Vince is concerned, is where's Dempsey? He's my friend. I'm trying to find him. Like that's the whole deal for Vince. And we still don't know at this point whether Vince, I'm sorry, whether Dempsey was involved in the car accident and it wasn't reported or something else happened to him. 
we still don't really know because like that's the whole mystery for Vince, right? So, right. So, uh, after they find out some information about Dempsey being dropped off at this villa that's outside of town, which we'll eventually get to, um, this guy starts to run away. And, of course, (laughs) um, Vince pulls out his gun to shoot him (laughs) while he's running away. I mean, why else? What else would you do if you're Vince? But then he gets in a wrestling match with uh, Junta, who says, no, you're not using a gun. You're doing it my way. Yeah. We're not in America. Right. And to shoot people in the back. And so now we have a rooftop chase scene, which is done very well. The cameras are placed in really interesting positions. There's some handheld movement. There's some stunts going on. The music is good. Is, is there music? Wait, you know, I, I don't want to catch myself lying. Oh, yeah, we've got the, um, the kunga going on with the uh, saxophone. And it's very kind of hip and stylized and James Bondish, I guess. You know, every time I hear a saxophone in this film, I wonder if it's Ivan... What's his name? Ivan... Checking his notes. Well, the composer. Ivan Vandor, because he was a professional jazz saxophonist. Oh, okay. So I wonder if that was actually him playing. That'd be cool. But I it would be if I was him, I'd want to do that. I'm like, yeah, I'll play. Hell yeah. Um Okay, so you know, uh this goes on for a while. (laughs) Um and eventually he gets cornered. (laughs) <laughs> and he's standing on he's standing on the edge of a slope uh, that has no guard and they get closer and closer to him and he's getting towards the edge and then we see this woman holding a watermelon and then he, <laughs> he slips and falls off of the building and when he hits the ground instead of him hitting the ground she drops the watermelon. And I thought that was really <laughs> well done. Um, and like kind of gross for a second or two, but that's uh, my favorite part of the whole film. <laughs> Just that little 10 seconds, right? There. Not even 10, maybe four or five. Yeah. Because when he falls, it's like for this film, they decided instead of dropping a dummy, what if we drop the camera? Right. Because you <laughs> right. get a kind yep. of falling doomed guy's point POV as right. he's you know, falling down the side of the building. And then the smash cut to that watermelon, no pun intended. Yeah. It, I laughed out loud and had to pause it because, I was, <laughs> because after, I mean, it's a little too drawn out the, the rooftop chase. Yeah. And then that beat coming right at, at the end of it. I, that was, <laughs> I got a huge kick out of that. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I liked it. And now, if you're keeping track, we got three Jalo score points in that one scene. We got a chase, we have a rooftop scene, and we have a death from falling. Dun, dun, yeah. dun. Bam, bam, bam. We're racking up the points. 
So we immediately cut to um, the police converging on this villa where supposedly Walter Dempsey was dropped off by a red jacket guy, red jacket, watermelon head. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) Junta, before they even go in, takes Vince's gun. He's like, give me your gun. I can't have this happening anymore. Um, But luckily for us, of course, uh, Vince has another gun. We saw how many guns that he had in the very beginning. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that there's one yeah. in, in his sock. So they um, show up with like eight cops and two dogs. To, for, uh, for, to do what, though? We don't even know. It's just, it's just a hint of a clue that was given by somebody who may have been telling the truth or may not have been. But we right. brought this whole you know, SWAT team people and shit still Uh, goes south (laughs) right they still can't get shit going so uh after everybody goes in and there's some really cool like sunset shots here and i don't know like every time i see these are these day for night shots or was it really supposed to be that you know this was the time of day when twilight was out but um we get some spiral stairs. We get a lot of spiral stairs in this movie, but I think this is the first time we saw them, so I gave it a point. Um, and then Vince enters this room where there's the old man in the wheelchair, and he's playing mm-hmm. some sort of game where he turns a crank and horses race across a, a board. And I don't know how you would ever be surprised by who wins. Like, why is this a game at all? There must be like, some random element to which horse gets goes faster each time. It would have to would be, imagine. because otherwise you would just be like, well, I know that if I put the white horse in the second slot, that uh, it's going to win. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, but um, go ahead. We're getting an established... Uh, theme of racing because it's, yeah. at the beginning we see the dog races and then we see the slot car races and now this guy has his little horse race toy whatever he's playing with so I thought that was pretty cool yeah I mean everybody here is preoccupied with some sort of competition um, perhaps it's uh, gambling that they're involved in because you know, the dog track is usually where people gamble um, yeah. Do people bet on slot car races? Because I don't think I've ever been to oh, a slot maybe, car race. Oh, you know, maybe they did back then. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so, but what really happens in this scene is that our invalid... Uh, <laughs> is that what they... Did they call him the invalid? What do they call him? The cripple? They keep calling him the cripple. I don't know. The word has probably changed four times since this movie came out. <laughs> um, so yeah, he, um, he surprises Vince with, uh, taking the, the table that he's sitting by and just flipping it over. And, um, then we, we realize I didn't, I didn't really realize this before, but the wheelchair is actually like a motorcycle <laughs> as well yeah. as a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you, and did apparently, you know that it was going to behave that way prior to this scene? <laughs> did you know he was sitting in a motorcycle? Well, I noticed that at the racetrack. I was like, why is there like 
motorcycle handlebars in front of his wheelchair. Okay, but I, you know, I just assumed it's like a primitive electric wheelchair motorized type right. thing. That's what I thought. <laughs> but when he fires it up here, it sounds like, you know, a gas powered motor. Yeah. And unless the engine, unless the motor was already running, it would have given, I mean, just to get the motor started would have given Vince enough time to jump out of the way. Right. Of course. And if it was already running, we've been like, yeah, I can hear the sound of the motorcycle engine in idle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. (laughs) So once again, it's um, man versus machine here as the uh, as Vince starts shooting uh, as he likes to do. And the old man tries to run him over (laughs) with his motorcycle. But Vince at the last minute finds something that he smacks him in the face with. Is it a shovel? It looks like a shovel, but it's one of the. You know the fireplace tools that people have? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's the little shovel for scooping out the ashes. And he just pans the back of the guy's head with it, which was also kind of funny. Yeah, definitely. So, of course, Junta comes in at this point and is pissed. And he's like, you know, I can't believe what I'm doing here. Every time you just fucking everything up for me with your stupid gun. Um so he didn't use a gun this time. <laughs> no, he used a shovel, but of course that wasn't until, um, his, I, did he drop his gun? Is that what happened? I don't know. It doesn't no, really matter. Jun- but. Junta took his gun. Remember when they were walking? No, I mean in? like the second gun, he went in and started shooting the old man or trying to, but why did he? Smack him in the face with the shovel instead. Did it? Did he drop his gun during the fight? Oh wait, he does have a gun walking in. Yeah, because he got he got it from his sock. Oh, okay, I missed that. There's a scene where he like rolls up his pant leg and he pulls a little gun out of his sock that he was carrying. Okay. Indeed, that motorcycle wheelchair has a reverse. That's cool. Yeah. So he can't get the gun because the motorcycle thing is in the way. <laughs> he just smacks that guy flat in the face with that shovel. <laughs> and apparently that killed him. <laughs> well, Immediately. You know. Okay. Sure. And Junta comes in all self-righteous. Punches him. Punches him in yeah. the face. Yeah, you're right about him looking a lot older now. <laughs> yeah, compare that with the opening shot of him dodging his little rubber bullets. I mean, yeah. Anyway. Well, the most interesting part of this whole scene is what happens next, which is <laughs> um, one of the other police guys finds a burnt piece of the Norwegian girl's suitcase and... It's beyond my comprehension as to why it would be in the house, but it's in the house. Um, or how they know already it's a Norwegian girl's suitcase. How do, yeah, how do they know that? Maybe but there was just, a luggage tag on it that said Norwegian girl. Yeah, Norwegian girl number two. 
And Vince still doesn't give a shit about the fact that one of these girls is the girl he was with before the movie all got even got, got going. So, um, well, that's pretty also, James Bond of them, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. <laughs> Sleep with a girl, she gets dead, and you just kind of shrug it off. Yeah. Right. Love them and leave them. <laughs> uh, they also find a newspaper with Walter Dempsey's signature written on it, and it's dated from two months ago. And, of course, Vince is like, well, that doesn't mean it was him. It could have been somebody else that wrote his name. And Junta is like, yeah, um, but that's probably because the person who wrote his name was intending to forge his signature and was practicing on the newspaper. Um, And then it seems like Vince is coming to the conclusion that anybody who... Uh, I don't know why I wrote this. Vince seems to think that everyone who knew Dempsey. Oh, I'm sorry. Vince thinks, oh my God, I don't even know what the hell I wrote here. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not handwriting. I typed it. Uh, <laughs> I just don't know what the hell it's supposed to mean. Um, it says, Vince thinks that everyone who knew Dempsey only arrived in Italy a week ago. Uh, uh, never mind. I don't know what the fuck I wrote here. It's, it's either dead or in danger of being dead. That's what I wrote. But um, the commissioner basically is like, um, I don't care about talking about this right now. I'm really still pissed off at the fact that, you know, I have another dead person that I have to deal with and it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, back in his hotel room, uh, with Fadelia, um, she's giving him a pedicure and we now have (laughs) the next hairstyle where I affectionately refer to it as princess Leia meets a steering wheel. (laughs) It gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it looks like it looks like this a sports car like an Indy 500 car steering wheel um when she turns a, a particular way um I even wrote holy hairstyle batman in my notes um yeah so I wrote you know that they talk about dumb shit and the music the music crescendos and then the phone rings and it's Junta and he's in the hotel lobby and They find out, I guess, from the autopsy that Galante had been chloroformed before he was murdered and um, that the old man in the wheelchair actually had 15 convictions. So guess what? Vince isn't such a bad guy after all. Um, Vince goes back and kisses Fidelia. Then we cut to... um, Hold on. I want to make sure I got this right in my notes, but oh, okay. So, so we cut to Vince coming downstairs to meet up with uh, Junta. Um, hang on. And. Junta has even more information. He says that no letters were ever delivered to via Mexico from America. 
And the old man that was in the wheelchair had a postcard in his house from Guido Salvatorelli addressed to Dr. Ferretti. So now we have another character, Dr. Ferretti. Mm -hmm. Um, So they decide to go to Dr. Ferretti's house. Why wouldn't you? It's the next logical step. It's not to... It's not to stop for a second and go, the who had a what postcard from who, what, who? But they don't say that. They just go right to Dr. Freddy's house to look for him. Um, let's see. Oh, they, yeah, they go to Freddy's house, but there's a guy sitting outside who said he's not home, and I guess he's out traveling or something. Um. Now, this starts to get very film noirish for me, like, you know, the Maltese Falcon or the Big Sleep, like all of these characters have been introduced and all of these names and all of these places and who knew who and who knew what. Um, that's what it's starting to feel like for me, because now we have Dr. Ferretti and we're going to get even more information um, in the next uh, 10 to 15 minutes that we have to try to process. Mm hmm. Um, but before that, and this one is also perplexing to me, um, a little bit, they decide that since, uh, Freddie isn't home, they're going to go back to Via Mexico to, I guess, get more information about Lydia. Um, because I think at this point, like there's, there's obviously some uh, ambiguity as to whether Lydia actually knew Dempsey. Well, no, now they're going to Riano, which is the town that Dempsey said. Oh, where, where she was met. Yeah, where he met her. She was right. from. Yeah. Okay. So they don't go to Via Mexico. They go to uh, no. the town, the Riano town. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of an implication here that maybe Lydia doesn't even exist. Um, maybe it was all made up. So they run into a priest. Um, I don't know if they were doing any other sort of investigating and we don't see that part, but they're talking to a priest. Um, I imagine that in a small town like Riano appears to be from the shot that we see of it on the hill. Okay. In those days you wanted to find somebody you would, you know, unless they're listed in the phone book, a good way to find them would be to go to the priest because most people in small towns, especially at that time, uh, even if they weren't regular churchgoers, the priest knows almost everybody and everybody knows everybody else. So that would be a good first point of searching, you know? Oh, okay. That makes sense. I'm down with that. Yeah. So the priest because they do. Them, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Ahead. Well, I'm sorry because they do all the weddings and the baptisms and the funerals and every little celebration. People invite the priest to you know kind of make the uh, uh, just make a good impression on their neighbors. You know. Yes. So. So very logical that that would be you know the first person you'd talk to about a, a particular person that lived in the town. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. So the priest says that, um, 
Lydia had died in 1963 of an incurable disease, and she never wrote back to Dempsey because she knew that there was going to be no future for them. Um, and they bring us to see the headstone, and of course, we notice that um, not only does it say Lydia, but it also says Lydia Ferretti which, of course, is the same name as the Dr. Ferretti that we heard about a few seconds ago. Right. So from there, uh, they walk down um, another spiral staircase to, I guess, the office where the priest does his uh, or keeps his records. And um, Vince says, I think Vince says, do you have a picture? Um, Okay. Does this count as a spiral staircase? Uh, let me go back and look. I just saw them coming down. It. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Ding. I mean, I wish we could give, like, we they could accumulate points for every spiral staircase. That would be a whole different. Oh yeah. Ball of wax here. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, I think Vince says, "Do you have a photo of Lydia?" Now he's just seen the photo from the gravestone, but whatever. Um, he says, yeah, here is a picture of Lydia um, with Dr. Ferretti. Did you know that they were related? Don't they resemble each other? Um, okay. I don't know what to do with that yet, but okay. So <laughs> I, I don't get it. But the guy just happens to have a picture of this woman who's been dead for four years in his top drawer. Oh yeah, stand, right here. Sta- and yes, and standing with her brother, and uh-huh. wasn't is there somebody else in the picture too? No, it's just, I don't. It's just her and the brother. Okay. Um. So something leads them to Ferretti's office, and I can't remember what it is. Like I his can't uh, either. Somehow they figure out where, let me see. He's looking at the picture. They're driving a car. Oh, there's a, well, there's they a had already been to Ferretti's house looking for him. And that was when right, the but, door guy said he's not here. Oh, you know what it could be? They were called to a crime scene. Oh, that happened to be at the Ferretti factory. And so they call them to the crime scene and they say, yeah, we're at this crime scene of Freddy's. And they, I guess that's where they end up. That's, I, I don't know that they knew that they were going to go to Freddy's um, uh, offices beforehand. They just got called there maybe. Right. So, that, you know, you got you to gotta fill in those little blanks there. Um, <clears throat> so apparently Freddy is on the floor uh, dead um, from wounds sustained from an explosion that was used to blow up a safe and steal things out of it. Um, But they also find uh, chloroform. They find a lot of things in this scene. There's a lot of, oh, by the way, Inspector, one more thing um, happening in this scene. But we find out that uh, Ferretti was linked to Salvatorelli. And I think... We find that out because, hold on, 
No, we don't find that out until a little bit later. But they start talking about the fact that <clears throat> here's the breadcrumbs that we've fo followed so far. The Norwegian girls led to Galante, which led to Salvatorelli, which led to the old man, which led to Ferretti. So here we are, one, two, three, four people deep, and we still don't know where the hell Dempsey is and what it has to do with anything. <laughs> Not a fucking clue. Um but uh, yeah, towards the end of the scene, they say, oh, I found some chloroform. And they're like, well, if they were going to blow him up from the safe, what do they need to chloroform him for? Um, we also find out that Ferretti uh, was linked to Salvatorelli and that Ferretti had spies trying to steal chemical formula secrets. So he wasn't just a straight shooter. He... Um, had a little bit of a, a of a dangerous side to him or a criminal side to him. So um, Junta goes over and interviews, I guess, Freddie's secretary and asks him if it, what it was like to work for him. And she's like, yeah, it was fine. And <laughs> doesn't really help. She doesn't anything. seem very torn up about the fact that her boss has got his face blown off. Yeah, she doesn't care. Not at all. Yeah. Um, let's see. <clears throat> what does this other guy say? The guy who comes in with the suspenders on, putting his jacket on while he talks. I have the sound turned down. Uh, something about previous charges, but nothing came of it. Oh, okay. And then the other guy comes in, says something else. It's just like information dump scatter yeah. shot. Yep, absolutely. That's how I, I saw it, too. Um, all right. So next scene is they decide to go to Freddy's house now. Um, considering the fact that he's dead, they don't have to worry about waiting for him to be there before they go inside. <clears throat> so they go inside and uh, they do this interesting thing with the cameras in the scene. You know, it's on the it's on the floor. Um they start looking for stuff. And there is a montage. But we do find out before the montage starts that. Uh, this one's hard to explain, but Ferretti owned the house. And leased it to Salvatorelli. But Salvatorelli didn't live there. The guy in the wheelchair lived there. Yeah. So there's the whole connection between those three people. I don't know what else the connection is. The fact that maybe they're in cahoots in some way or another. But we then go through a montage of looking through various uh, drawers and um, places. And I think at this point there is... Some very kind of tense music playing that is using the that main theme again. They're checking inside uh, film cameras and books, and they're looking for anything that they might be able to find. And <clears throat> eventually, we get this camera angle from uh, the bottom of what looks like a, a waste basket or a garbage can, and um, which should have been the first place they looked. Or right, one instead of, the first of opening places. pillows, right? 
and picking up every little statuette or knickknack and <laughs> finally, oh, look in the trash can. I mean, the guy's yeah, tearing once... apart pillows and shit before he goes to the <laughs> but trash once you can. Find the, once you find the clue in the trash can, you can't have a montage of all the other places, right? So it's like, <laughs> you know, that whole, that, that weird saying, like, how come it's always in the last place you look? And that's because once you find it, you stop looking. You yeah. <laughs> and I want to insert the Team America. We got to have a montage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of montages in here, yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, the the um, Psych Out for Murder was the montage, like oh grand champion, for yeah. sure. So inside this uh, garbage can, Vince finds pipe tobacco bag and a Dunhill cigarettes bag, and mm-hmm. he comes up with an idea. I want to go talk to the doorman again. Who seems to always need to wipe the sweat off his head? Like <laughs> he's six or the seven sweatiest times. guy in Italy. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we find out that um, Ferretti was a smoker, but never smoked a pipe. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And so that clues Vince into the fact that um, Dempsey must have been in Ferretti's house, and. They they decide, I don't know how they came to this conclusion, but <laughs> I, I really don't know how they came to that, this conclusion. That's me through half of this movie. That Vince, um, Vince deduces that Ferretti killed Dempsey and stole his identity. And so that's why the guy in... Ferretti's place was blown up to obscure his identity, right? Like the dead guy that they found at Ferretti's office is actually Dempsey, or at least that's what Vince thinks. But yeah. they don't know that for sure because they can't identify the body because it's been blown to smithereens and they're going to have to wait for <laughs> an autopsy or something. Right. So Vince is pissed, and it's partly because he just wants to shoot something really badly. But um, <laughs> the commissioner, <laughs> the commissioner says, "Look, don't worry about it. Um, he's going to use Dempsey's passport to leave the country, and we will catch him when he does that. No big deal." So um, Vince um, goes on a bender in the next scene. Yeah. Um, i'm laughing for what comes after that but basically vince is at this rooftop he orders a bourbon and the guy's like another one he's like get me a goddamn bourbon um (laughs) but suddenly uh fidelia arrives again and this time i have her down as chewbacca hair uh because that's what that's what she looks like. She looks like Chewbacca. Like this is the yeah. worst of all the haircuts of all the things yeah. that she's had on her head so far. This is actually, I don't know the steering wheel thing <laughs> might've been worse. She definitely looks well, like this a is like the, an, another step up from the steering wheel. You know, her head looks like the love child of Chewie and princess Leia. Yeah. It's almost as if her previous hairstyle Went into some sort of chrysalis and 
came out the other <laughs> end with the, looking like it does now. You don't like my hair now, but wait till you see it after the transformation. So yeah, like that that long-haired <laughs> British guy watered it overnight. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish we could get a picture. Uh, you could just Yeah. Uh, never mind. Um I was thinking in my head uh, some sort of a cartoon where long-haired blonde British guy is standing over Fidelia and she's got her Princess Leia stealing or steering wheel hair and he's he's got a, a watering can and he's standing over it. <laughs> anyway, um she's been looking for Vince everywhere. Um she is pissed at him. Um and she's mad at him and I've been looking for all for you all over Rome and then Vince uh gets up and then he falls over and she's like, are you okay? And then Vince uh, says, give me a coffee. So he's going to, he's decided he wants to sober up. Um, yeah. So then we cut to the dog kennel and we're not even sure exactly why we're here yet, but um, eventually we see some man walking with a Hitler looking kind of mustache with a woman who's got a radio and a purse or a something in a purse. And he stops at another figure and they stand back to back and he tells her to go away and she puts the music on and starts dancing, uh, <laughs> which is really and funny. <laughs> the other guy, the guy that Hitler's talking to is inspector Junta, right? Correct. Okay. And they're standing there back to back, like they're trying to give off the impression that, no, we're not talking to each other. We're just the only two guys around standing like a foot away from each other. Right. So the thing I got from this was that um, this guy, whoever he is, is kind of like a confidential informant. Right. And they're meeting... Because um, uh, Junta is expecting to get some information from this guy. And he says that Ferretti was paid $1.5 million for trade patents. And that there was an American who was going to handle the transaction. He doesn't know his name. But apparently now the money is gone. And this guy is pissed. Because not only is he a confidential informant, but he's also involved in the crime. I, I don't know. Because um, he's pissed that his share is gone and he won't get it back. Right. So do with that information what you what you will. The next scene, uh, we switch back to the hotel and uh, Vince is trying to sober up. He's got an ice bag on his head. Um, <laughs> and... We still have Chewbacca Fidelia, who is kind of a wise ass. Um, and he said, you know, something about I'm trying to think. And she says something like, oh, that must be very hard for you or something. So. Um, she says with that hair and a straight face. Right. There's something <laughs> wrong with you. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think at some point. 
the phone rings and Vince gets a call from Junta who tells him about the information he just got in the previous scene. And so, um, but before that, are we treated to this interesting little thing where <laughs> the flowers are in between this weird Ewok looking person and Vince. <laughs> and I got the sense, I guess the first time I was watching this, that she, that they were trying to make us feel like she was involved in this in some way. Like he's pacing back and forth. He's trying to figure this out. He's got some more information from the commissioner. It's making him pace. It's making his wheels turn. And we keep cutting to Chewbacca lady who's being obscured by these, <laughs> these flowers. And it's almost as if like her real identity is still being somewhat hidden, but um, we're starting to, to maybe get to a revelation here, but it's nothing like, I don't know why yeah. they did this shot this way. Nothing really happens from it. He just asks her if she'd ever seen, um, if she had ever, if she had ever seen a, a, a million dollars or a million and a half dollars. And then he tells her the story about how he saw 400,000 once and it was packed so tightly into a suitcase that um, the suitcase, the money started shooting out of the suitcase and she starts laughing. And then she says um, something about, no, I've never seen that, but I bet you've never seen the Plaza de whatever the hell it is that they go to. In the Navona. Country. Yeah. Piazza Navona. Yeah, it's one of the, the more touristy places to go. It's a, uh, it's a sight to see when you're in Rome. And that leads us into a travel log, which reminded yep. me of the one that we had in the Embalmer. Where yeah. the guy was going through Venice, pointing out all the sites, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know she immediately switches to a, another wig, all white. And, yeah, <laughs> and it's she way must better have than two what she suitcases had on. full of hair, and yeah. that's all. That's why she didn't I have her own pajamas. My guess is that the uh, the film was sponsored by the wig makers, and they just wanted all of their <laughs> wigs um, displayed in this movie. Mm -hmm. So they go to this town square and they're taking a look at the fountain and Vince has a revelation. All of a sudden we hear the piano music that we heard at the very beginning of the, of the film when the main theme was first established. The kids are running. There's a balloon man who's got lots and lots of differently shaped balloons standing in the square and the kids are running over to him. And then the camera seems to zoom in on these balloons to the point where <clears throat> we don't even know what we're looking at anymore. It's all out of focus. And once the balloons clear out of the frame, we see the balloon man who has now put a fake nose on his face, uh, must up his hair, put on some makeup and then stuck a pacifier in his mouth. And, that is supposed to be the thing that Vince says, aha. Now, what the fuck it means? We don't know. Well, it, it's because, the guy changing his appearance. Right. No, understood. But I mean, at this so, point, every little thing that Vince decides is going to be worth, worth investigating 
he mentions out loud to the movie, or at least, you know, to one of the other characters. And so Mm -hmm. when he's pursuing his next clue, we know kind of where he's going or why he's doing it. But in this case, the only thing we know is that he was looking at the balloon guy who was looked normal. And then when he popped up again, he's wearing a disguise or a costume. Mm -hmm. I mean, was there any other indication as to what, was there any more information that I missed that would lead you to believe, Hey, you know, Oh, I get it. I know what Vince has figured out. Like we don't know. Right. At this point. I don't think so. I think they kind of wanted to hold back on that because that would kind of give away the ending. Right. But so see, we then, see them go okay. to a couple different hospitals and talk to a couple different doctors and we don't hear any dialogue. We just kind of see them nodding their head and then shaking their head. No, no, right. no. And then they go somewhere else. And it's not until the very last one that somebody mentions uh, reconstructive facial surgery. And from that point, if you haven't figured out the ending of this, then uh, you know, I don't know what to tell not, you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because in the very last scene, we see somebody else walking around with tape over their nose. Um, so I guess they give them a, they give the cops a room number. Or they give the, the, the cop and Vince a room number and they go to the room, um, but it's empty. And... Mm-hmm. Then, uh, let's see. Check my notes here. Hang on one second. So, oh yeah, okay. So once they realize that the room is empty, they separate. And uh, the commissioner, he goes up onto the roof of this Hotel building. I don't know why. Um, again, ugh, this box keeps getting bigger. We need two boxes. Uh, commissioner goes up to the roof uh, to find a man wrapped in bandages sitting in a chair overlooking, you know, the the, the town, I guess. Now, mm-hmm. if this guy... I don't know. Is it worth asking? So let's just pretend that this guy is at the hospital, whoever he is, whoever he is. um, He's had facial reconstructive surgery. He should be in his room, but instead he's sitting on the roof. Now, would that be something that a patient would be allowed to do in the hospital? Um, Or if not, and he left his room because he knows that the cops are looking for him. Why is he sitting on the roof? So. Yeah, it looks. It doesn't look like he's hiding. It looks like he's just lounging. And at right. first, I might think, okay, he went up there to smoke a cigarette. But then I remembered that, you know, even through the seventies, you could still smoke inside a hospital. I mean, I think oh, they yeah. had ashtrays in the operating rooms. Sure, <laughs> so sure. That doesn't make sense. He may have just. But then, as he's running air. down the hallway. Some of these doctors or orderlies, as soon as they see him running, they like try to catch him or attack him. Like, is he a prisoner or it's the whole thing's kind of weird. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, um, as as uh, Junta gets closer to this figure, he turns around and tries to shoot him. This fucking Junta, I swear to God, the poor guy, (laughs) there's guns everywhere. 
and he just can't catch a break. Everyone's got a gun. Like this isn't the Italy I remember. Um, yeah. So <laughs> this this masked bandaged figure goes running through the hallways trying to escape, and I did notice that there was no music playing here. Like normally you would hear some like you know kind of dun 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 dun, dun like the the people's court kind of music or like you know. Uh, um, <laughs> You know the the uh, the shaft, the theme from Shaft or something, um, but yeah. no, nothing. Um, Where's Ivan with the saxophone? Come exactly, on. and we even have like an upside down camera angle at one point where you know this bandaged man is running through the the halls. He's running through the the it looks like the boiler room at one point, and um, <laughs> we get a whole tour of the hospital. Yeah, and then there's this upside down thing, and then this ambulance comes in, and here's the next thing that I thought was really funny. <laughs> this ambulance, was awesome. The ambulance comes in, and I hope that you and I are on the same paid wavelength with this. He jumps into the ambulance and drives off with it as a getaway car, but for some reason leaves the siren going. And that was what I didn't understand. Like, he's trying to escape, but he's. Oh, is that what you thought was funny? Yeah, no, what did you think was funny? As they're taking the patient out of the back of the ambulance, he just peels out and they drop right. the guy right, right the there guy on the ground. <laughs> exactly. I laugh my ass off again. I mean, just like with the uh, the, with the, with the watermelon, the watermelon, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, him leaving the siren on. Okay, yeah, it draws attention to yourself, but it also clears a way ahead of you, like oh yeah, that's true. Siren is supposed to do. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think of that. That's funny. Yeah, because in the next few scenes, we see him trying to get through traffic and there's a car chase. So, yeah. And, and he's being chased by the largest car in Italy through these <laughs> little narrow, tiny streets. And right. <laughs> you throw that in the box, too, because. Eh. And this is Rome. This is like one of the busiest, most populated cities in Italy. I mean, not the most, but I don't know. It must have been a holiday when they filmed this because there's not that much traffic, but still. I mean, they go right past the Coliseum. Yeah. Well, and some of the scenes are sped up, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that. So it's almost like watching a a Benny Hill episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so let's see. The chase, uh, continues and, um, and all through this part of the chase, there's still no music. Hmm. It's just the sound of the, it's the sound effects of the cars and the siren going this whole time. Um, So eventually, uh, the guy driving the ambulance stops the ambulance, and the siren also stops. Um, <laughs> and Vince and Junta follow him into this building, which turns out to be what I think is a slaughterhouse. Um, yep. And you know, there's cows everywhere. Did you notice the horse in the back of the that shot? No. Where they run past the cows? If you no, pause no. it right there, you see in the very back stall. Oh, yeah. There's I a horse. It. Yep. 
there's a cultural tidbit for you. <laughs> was that was horse on the menu in 1967 in Italy or is it's just... it's on the menu right now. Oh, okay. You could go to the grocery store and buy horse meat. Oh boy. Anytime you want. Yeah. So don't tell Willie Nelson, but <laughs> So they continue the uh the chase on foot. Um of course, you know, at one point doesn't I oh, know, it Oh, okay. So uh, Junta is standing at the top of this um, level here, right next to what looks like a sliding board. And a hand comes out from the right side of the frame and shoots and hits um, Junta. And he collapses and slides down the sliding board into a giant pile of bones. Bones Uh, and skulls and jaws and yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, consider vegetarianism moment. <laughs> exactly. But what what kills me is when they were on the roof, Junta was like 10 feet away from him, and he fired multiple shots and missed every single time. Here, he's like the, the sniper from Mars or something, because he's so far away, and he nails him on the first shot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So uh, Vince shows up and says, um, give me your gun. And he says, no, <laughs> uh, he won't. He will not break protocol, man. He just won't do it. This is the theme. And so then they start. Uh, so then Vince starts chasing after the, the bandaged man and he's chasing him through the inner workings of the slaughterhouse, which is very, very clean. I thought it would be, you know, it. I feel as if, if you're killing and um, preparing meat, you know, you'd see a lot more like red stuff all over the floor, but I don't know. I've never been in a slaughterhouse, so. Um, well, they probably clean it after every shift, but there's nobody there and the place is wide open. And it, yeah, and it's completely empty. What, yep. Yeah. There's no locked doors. There, you know, okay. You could just walk in and help yourself to a side of beef, apparently. Right, right. Well, and at this point, you say to yourself, okay, they obviously don't have much left in this story because between the chase that starts from the hospital that then evolves to the ambulance car chase that then evolves to the slaughterhouse foot chase, um, nothing is going on. It's just more and more action. Um, And, you know, they start with these uh, elevators going up and down and, you know, the bandaged man is on one level and Vince is on another and then Vince coming downstairs and then bandaged man up top. And uh, it's like, it's, they, they orchestrated a lot of this stuff. Um, and I guess it was just for the pure entertainment factor of, you know, the suspense and the chasing and just, you know, the whole idea of, Hey, you know, we've got this slaughterhouse rented out that we can film in. We might as well do a lot of it because we can get our mm-hmm. money's worth. So, um, eventually, um, the bandage man, he starts up, uh, the meat grinder. Um, and Vince jumps him and, uh, let's see the bandage man shoots at him. And then when he doesn't, 
hit him, he throws his gun at him and then runs away. Well, I think but he's out of ammo. He's out of that's ammo, right. So you throw your, that's yeah. when you throw your gun, of course. So Vince um, eventually catches up to him with some sort of a hook that he must have grabbed from somewhere and pulls off his bandages. And it's Dempsey. It's Dempsey. Surprise, surprise. surprise. It's Dempsey. Wait, what is it? It's it really. And Vince can't believe it. He's like, what the fuck? I thought you were dead. I don't understand what's going on. Um, and he starts wailing on him. <laughs> yeah. And then he's and then he's pissed that it's his friend. So he starts punching him. And, and I think like we get dribs and drabs of. Um, explanation starting from this point, because I think before Dempsey is done. He says that he killed everyone so he could get his money because they backed out of the deal. Yeah. that That's what I got out of that. And then he says, look, I will give you half of this money if you just, uh, you know, let me escape. And Vince is like, no, fuck that. Um, we're going to fight. I didn't come all this way just to take 750 thousand lira and run away or is that what it was or no it was dollars it was dollars seven hundred fifty thousand dollars yeah. yeah, um, i hope it was dollars right so they so they start fighting again and uh we get this real tense last minute moment where um vince gets trapped in the kind of the shovel thing that leads you into this giant meat grinder and he's getting crushed and he's putting his feet um uh, trying to block himself from getting pulled in. And um, we think this may be the end of Vince, um, but all of a sudden um, Junta comes in and shoots Dempsey and uh, turns off the meat grinder. And uh, that's the end of Dempsey. It's over. Dempsey's yep. dead. And finally, a gun was used properly <laughs> for the first time. Yeah, Junta finally got to kill somebody. Maybe yeah, and he, de- on. he deserved it, man. He really did. Yeah. <sighs> so, it's over, everybody. Dempsey's dead. Um, the last scene starts at the airport. Vince and Junta are walking down the ramp. Um, he asks what happened to Fidelia. He says, uh, you know, those jet set people, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Um, and we find out a little bit more, I guess, that Dempsey was the spy that Ferretti was using to get these industry secrets. Um, and I have in my notes, uh, Dempsey hoped that Vince would identify him as the dead Ferretti. I, I don't even under, do, do you have any last minute um, insight on what really happened? Cause I don't, I don't want to talk about it much. more. <laughs> I, I am still intrigued, but ladies and gentlemen, we did talk about finding a balance here and you know, we get to yeah. the end of this movie and we want some closure. We want some information because it was a mystery, but, what happened? I still don't know what happened. Well, I I distinctly get the impression that this whole conversation here at the airport is supposed to be the um, 
belated exposition dump that explains everything and clears out your boxes of disbelief. Right. But it's it really doesn't work because right. the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. So these guys lured Dempsey to Italy by sending him a letter supposedly from this woman that he was in love with, who happened to be the daughter of this rich industrialist who wanted some sort of trademark, I don't know, corporate espionage secret thing. And he goes over there. They don't pay him. He kills the guy, Ferretti, and then has facial surgery. Is he trying to make himself look like Ferretti or just make himself not look like Walter Dempsey anymore? Good question. And the only thing that he really had done was his nose. Yeah, because, and that because got undone as soon as Vince saw it was him. <laughs> right. I mean, the guy exactly. just had facial surgery and he starts punching him in the face. Ouch. Um, so, I don't get it. I mean, so they were, they already had him being tailed from the very beginning, right? Yes. The little circle of corporate spy guys. So, when you crash the car with the two Norwegian girls in it, why not just get rid of Walter then and put him in there? And if nobody ever finds Walter Dempsey's body, they're still going to be looking for Walter Dempsey, especially once they look into the whole situation and start connecting dots. So, did he have a fake passport with, I don't know, some... John Doe name in it that he was going to use to get out of the country. <laughs> I may be just tired, but as yeah. you're explaining this, I'm trying to go back to the beginning and recreate the movie in my head based on the fact that we know more information about Dempsey. And I still don't understand what it was all about. Yeah. Cause this is like my, I don't know, third and a half time going through this film, and I'm still as uncertain about what I just watched happen. He shows up <laughs> at the very beginning. He's in the hotel where he's hanging out with his friend from the football days. Never mind how that came together. Somebody had already been rifling through his hotel room probably looking for these corporate secret trademark thing that these guys wanted. But then they send the red jacket guy to escort him back to Rome or wherever it was. And instead of just taking the secrets from him and putting him in the car with the two Norwegian girls and oh well, Walter Dempsey's history game over which you have plausible deniability the guy had an accident. He's dead. I mean, that would have worked. Right. But no, we're going to kill the two Norwegian girls and still have this pissed-off American guy that we're trying to rip off for these secrets running around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's what happens when you, when you go through this movie. You think you start to get 
some momentum in your thought process for figuring this out. And then you go, but wait, eh, never mind. It's just, yeah, it's two steps forward and one step back <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And after a while you're like, you know, this isn't worth the stepping. Fuck it. There's other stuff to watch. I think it's one step forward and two back, honestly. Right. <laughs> we never and really why get was anywhere. he at Ferretti's house smoking his pipe? Because, I mean, th- that's right. They they found the Dunhill tobacco bag or whatever, and he figured out, oh, because, you know, the first five minutes of the film, every shot of Dempsey has the, you know, him, he's holding the pipe, so they kind of hit you over the head with that. Right. Right. But at what point did Walter decide, fuck these guys, they're trying to rip me off. And. (sighs) (laughs) We know that between Ferretti and Salvatorelli and what was it? uh, Gavante or Galante, whatever that guy's name was. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of henchmen. And bad dudes around. How did it get to the point where it? I don't. Okay, maybe he showed up <laughs> and found by accident, quote unquote, uh, Vince because he wanted to lure Vince into the the story because he knew that Vince along the way would get rid of the the henchmen and the other bad guys for him. You know, like like Dempsey had some sort of master plan. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. Because one by one, uh, Dreiser, Vince Dreiser, is killing all the people that are in the way. Right. And he just had to kill the last guy at the end. And he'd already been hanging out with him at his house, leaving his tobacco bag in the trash can. So it would have been easy enough to set him up. And they said that at the office where the the safe was blown up and the guy's face was all blown to shit. That had happened probably over the weekend, so his body's probably been here 48 hours. So maybe, oh, he took the guy to his office to open the safe to get him the money. <laughs> but you would think with a blown up face, okay, is Dempsey now going to try to assume the identity of Ferretti? Because how's that going to work? And if Ferretti was trying to take the place of Dempsey, like we, like uh, Dreiser originally thought when he was, you know, drinking himself to death on that rooftop, thinking his buddy was dead. Right. Was his idea that Ferretti was going to take the place of Dempsey? Yeah, because they said, well, he'll be using Dempsey's passport, so we'll find him. Right. But that doesn't make sense either. Because And who was the guy who met up with Junta at the dog kennel? Because he says or indicates that he has... Um, stake in this deal because he lost money. So who's he? And how come 
he just goes and talks to the police in a confidential way and doesn't get involved in any of this. He's not killed. He's not chased. He's not blown up. He's not chloroformed. He's not even arrested. Well, he must have been a silent partner that (laughs) Dempsey never found out about. But again, uh, the more questions, the more questions, you know? Yeah. More questions than answers for sure. Um, and you know, if you're still listening to the podcast, everybody, we say this all the time, but it bears repeating (laughs) the people who made this movie did not intend for us to have this discussion. They just didn't, they did not expect, um, all of the things that happened in the last 20 years with the internet and even DVDs or anything. They, they never expected anybody to watch this movie after it was playing in the theater. And going back to the production notes, we really don't know how successful of a film it was, um, but it probably ran a little bit and then it was forgotten about. And as you can see by the amount of re-releases and media, you know, like uh, tangible media versions and the fact that you can't find it anywhere for streaming, like even some of these now have become films that you can find on Tubi or you can even buy them for streaming through Amazon or what have you, YouTube. But this one, it's like, it's, it's really, a it's a little bit more obscure. So the filmmakers are just like, you know, uh, we need, we need the, uh, the, the pragmatist, Mr. Matt Wall to inject his opinion about this, but I'll try to channel it for him. Um, <laughs> they didn't know what they were doing. They were writing the script as they were filming the scene Uh, They maybe they changed it up halfway or they came up with new ways of working out the clues that didn't make sense against the way that they were working out the clues. But it doesn't matter because if you're going to be watching it, you're just going to be watching it because it's a kind of an action espionage kind of thriller kind of movie. Mm -hmm. Um, As evident by the fact that most of the attention was placed on the action sequences as far as the the effort you know it doesn't look like they spent a lot of time on the script itself as opposed to the the you know the spectacle aspect of the film so yeah uh, well at any rate um vince decides basically he says to junta junta that he's pretty much ready for uh, a much slower paced job and um, Junta says, hey, um, the next time you want to make friends with the police, don't do it the hard way or something like that. Some stupid ending thing to say. And um, yeah. he says, come on, go get on the plane before you miss it. So he gets on the plane or so we think. Dun, dun, dun. But <laughs> um, our heroine. And at this point, you kind of need to be on heroin to watch this movie. <laughs> uh, our heroine flies in. Uh, she's not a jet set. She's a copter. She's in the copter set, not the jet set. Yeah. She's in a uh, helicopter, and uh, the helicopter is being flown by, I think, or I don't know if it's being flown by the blonde-haired British guy. Maybe he's just sitting in the passenger seat. Yeah, um, he's just in the back. 
and it lands and um, she gets out and oh my goodness, how quaint. Mr. Vince has decided not to get on the plane for some reason. Did he see her in the helicopter? Did he just not get on yet? Did he decide to stay behind because he wanted to go on another investigation to find Chewbacca, Ewok, (laughs) Ostrich Head? I don't know, but it doesn't really matter because the helicopter lands and Vince is there and they embrace and the song starts playing called I'll Stay With You. Um, (laughs) It has nothing to do with the movie at all. They don't even write reuse any of the musical themes it's just kind of like one of those songs that you hear at the end of a movie that you know it was i don't know yeah it's kind of just nailed on the end yep and yeah that was where i uh i dropped off with my appreciation of this film's use of music (laughs) you're right of course i wonder if this would make more sense if you could find and read the original novel. Yeah. But kind of what would be the point? Cause you already know how it ends, but I don't know. I might, if I could get a hold of it, read it just to fill in all these blanks that are in the box, you know? Well, it may be more like, Oh yeah. And I'm sorry. She does have a different wig on when she gets out of the helicopter. It's like a yeah. silver, Yeah, it's like she robbed a Christmas tree of its pencil. <laughs> she could use those earrings that What's-Her-Name had in that other movie. That would have been awesome. Christmas ball <laughs> earrings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, you know, maybe you understand the film more if you watched it in reverse. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, uh, okay, so real quick, I did do a Jalo score for this a while back, so um, I won't go through it all, but it came in at 66 points, and uh, it kind of makes sense because, um, you know, there's certainly not a killer on the loose, but there kind of is a killer on the loose, and the identity of this person is hidden, and people get killed, and... There's lots of suspects, but they all kind of eventually get um, dismissed as they get killed. But there's all of these little one pointers like the airplane taken off, a chase scene, the city map, the guy falling off the roof. Um, Vince is a foreigner. Uh, Hippies are dancing. There's a priest. There's lots of spiral stairs. So um, probably by accident, it's a little bit higher on the Jalo score than it should be. But uh, yeah, 66 is its score. So, okay. Overall impressions. Um, you want to go first? Would you watch this again or? Uh, I don't know if I do, it'll be a while. This film reminded me a lot of carnal circuit. Yeah. Or the insatiables. Yes, me too. Because you have somebody trying to help his friend. And then thinking the friend is dead and then finding out that the friend had uh, faked their own death and tried to escape with a bunch of money. Um, You have an element of somebody from outside of the country coming in 
in this case it was Dempsey and uh, in Carnal Circuit it was uh, the Robert Hoffman character. Right. Uh, you get the idea. I mean, there's a common theme of people being screwed over by either the entertainment industry in one case or the industrial uh, interests in this one. Um, there were a lot of street scenes of Rome compared to a lot of street scenes of Los Angeles, and I think they'd go well together as a double bill if you're interested yeah. in that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the same kind of theme. Yeah. I would say if I had to pick one over the other, it would be Carnal Circuit. I like that one better. Yeah, I do too. There was a lot of interesting camera work in this, but I think, I don't know, I kind of got the impression that the photographers were just kind of bored <laughs> doing yeah. stuff for the right. sake of it. Uh, there was point. some interesting camera work in Guarini's other film, The Third Eye, but nothing like this. So I would credit that to just the cinematographers. And along those lines, uh, between this and Third Eye, which one do you think would be the better Guarini film? Oh. Now that is a good question because they are so different. Mm-hmm. I mean... Pacing-wise, story-wise, stylistic-wise, I mean, if we're trying to compare these as which one is better because the the only similarity they have is the same director, but Mm -hmm. I think that Third Eye is a better film in general. But I think that Date for a Murder is more entertaining simply because it's faster paced. Uh, Third Eye is, you know, a little bit more of a creeper kind of a film. Right. But also creepy, you know, so that gives it, it, that gives it some legs, you know. Um, If this film had a plot that was complicated enough to be interesting, but also um made sense and you could follow it maybe that would put it over the top because some of the other stuff that they do in the film is pretty entertaining i also think they could have chosen well i mean we could start getting into the subplot of the romance and if they use a different character but i think that that whole story was just a distraction from the main plot and was probably thrown in because they really didn't have much to work with. Uh, if they could have figured yeah. out how Fidelia could have been worked into the film to become more of a suspect. And, mm-hmm. you know, like Argento does this thing where, you know, one of the characters, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, kind of giving you some sort of indication that maybe you should suspect the person who you should, who you should least suspect. Um, right. Like a red herring. Type. Yeah. Yeah. And, but they didn't do that with this one. Um, yeah. There was, there was absolutely zero connection between the two storylines. Right. And there were enough scenes that felt like padding or maybe not just pure padding, but things that were strung out right. a lot longer than they needed to be. 
to me, it kind of feels like the whole Fidelia story is just padding. Yeah. It's like somebody taking two episodes of a TV show and mashing them together and putting it out as a movie, which, you know, has happened back back in the day a few times. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we also don't really know how connected the producers were with the actress who played Fidelia and maybe, you know, they wanted to jumpstart something that was going on with her. And so they wanted to put her in the film for some reason, you know, but they didn't have a real purpose for her. So they just decided, Hey, let's, uh, let's create a subplot romance where we can show off all the wigs that, uh, Oh geez. The fucking wig. <laughs> yeah. So what if know. they made the character Fidelia? What if they made her Ferretti's daughter? And like she, the Lydia or Livia, if you look at her tombstone, character was still alive, but somehow Dempsey never got to her. So he goes looking for Dempsey and finds her, and then together they go. And then she finds out that her own dad had this weird. Uh, corporate espionage thing going on with Dempsey. And, you know, that would be a way to put those two elements together. Yeah, definitely. I like that better than what we saw. I mean, that may not, if you fleshed out the script that way, you might say, oh, this is just as bad, but it already sounds better (laughs) than what we watched. (laughs) Definite improvement. (laughs) Well, so yeah, I I um I've seen this movie enough times. I think that it is a safe bet that with all of the movie choices that I am going to have between now and the time that I drop dead, <laughs> I won't watch this again. And cuz I've seen it four times now, I think. So, I think it's enough. Yeah. If it if yeah. if I'm flipping through the channels, if we one if we one day downgrade back to a a a society where we watch TV just based on what time it is and what's on. Um, and I'm flipping <laughs> through channels and, uh, and there's only three of them <laughs> and there's only three and date for a murder is on one. I will check the other two channels first, but then I would go back <laughs> if there was nothing else on, but otherwise I don't, I don't think it's, it's happening. We're one film away now, ladies and gentlemen, from being done with this, uh, with this era, this prototype Jalo era. And I think that we should talk about um, next time when we do okay. um, Death Knocks Twice, which will be the last one. I think that uh, prior to Death Knocks Twice, we should do a ranking of all of the films that we've both watched together, starting with Naked You Die and going all the way up to next next time's film and see where we rank them. And, and it's really funny because if I think about the movies, let's say in the 1971-72 period, 
and I pick maybe 10, um, I'll have some definite opinions on which ones are much better than others. Like these are my favorites and so on. But with this group of films, and I think it's close to 20 now, they're all kind of in the meh category. Like none of them really blew me away. Like you and I didn't do an episode on libido um, because uh, Matt and I covered that um, a bunch of episodes ago, but out of all of these films from 64 to 70, if you exclude blood and black lace, I think libido is my next favorite. Mm. And sometimes I like murder clinic. Sometimes I don't. Um, Sometimes just the whole period piece thing just, eh, it makes me not really want to watch it. Cause I always think of Jalo films as being, you know, modern for their time period. Um, and then there's the, the lady of the lake or what the hell was it called? The possessed, uh, the possessed. Yeah. That one is up there for me. And, but anyway, this is a conversation for next time. Not this time. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. So like we said before, uh, next episode will be episode 99, and we will be covering the, I forget what year it is, Death Knocks Twice. The 1969 Death Knocks Twice starring Fabio Testi, um, who we know from um, What Have You Done to Solange? He was the, uh, the gym teacher and the main character. Oh, and it also has any ass man. Ah, oh, yes, any ass man. Oh yeah, she was in Carnal Circuit. Speaking of which, oh she wow. was the secretary at the newspaper. That's right. I remember we, goofing we, on her name way back then. Yeah, and we made a big deal out of her because she was only on screen for two seconds, and she was our favorite. Um, yeah, our favorite starlet of the whole film, except for Romina, of course. Yeah, so that's that, everybody. As always, please get in touch with us if you would like to. We can be reached on Facebook at the Jalo Chow Chow group. To get in touch with us through there, request entry to the group. There aren't any weird questions that you have to answer. Just say, I want to be in the group, and I'll let you in. And um, if you do not do the Facebook thing, that's fine. Go to Jalo chow chow at gmail.com and send us an email and we would love to hear from you whether you like us or don't and what else can i say um i hate matt wall i don't but that's the name of his website i hate matt speaking of dot com how about the score.com that's my website it's been around for a long long time and i rarely do anything with it anymore but it's still up because i just can't fathom the idea of it not being up. So I just pay to make myself feel better. Okay. How about you, sir? Uh, anything you wish to lay on us or say before we Mm. call it a night? No, not really. Uh, send feedback. We like it when we get feedback, whether it's negative or positive. Sometimes I enjoy the negative feedback more than the positive. I had thought of something right when you were talking, which basically means I wasn't listening to you. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> there's some negative feedback. Hey, There's some negative feedback right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it, everybody. So thanks again for joining. And until next time, ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>